The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And today on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, have you ever wanted to kill your friends? And not just as a passing idle thought, but like really wanted to plunge that spotless stainless steel of a butcher knife into their shallow callous hearts, or serve them a wake-up call cup of that icy sweet blue liquid Drano? With the sudden appearance of a sax-playing, trenchcoat-wearing, 7-Eleven hopping rebel with a cause be all it would take to seduce you over to the exciting opportunities of embracing teen homicide? Well, let's find out. Because today we are licking up Lehman and Waters' 1989 first offering turned cult film, Heathers. So sit back, take stock of your enemies, and pour yourself a slushy of chemical cleaner as we drink down this beloved comedy of dark depravity. Brought to you by Cheerful Fatalism, Not Subtle Subtlety, The Universal Love Language of 7-Eleven, and the Cost-Benefit Analysis of Teenage Suicide. And of course, our safe word today is School Spirit. Anything to add, Benji? What more can I need to add, London? Our hatred is God. Now let's go get a slushy. I really do hate you. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of space! Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. London, greetings and salutations. Oh god, we're starting with that already, are we, Benji? Oh, Benji, you're getting my name wrong too? Fuck me gently with a chainsaw, that's annoying. Yeah, pass. <laughs> well, come on, just not even a little I, gently. Actually, I'm torn on that, because it might result in your death, but... Uh, <laughs> uh. That not have to go near you. Nobody uh, wants that. Okay, so references, uh, references to the movie we haven't yet discussed, but we're about to. What is today's movie, Benji? Today's movie is Mike Lehman's 1989 directorial debut, Heather's. Yeah, yeah, it is. This movie's super fun. The lightning summary of this film is that we're gonna have a really dark comedy about a young girl, Veronica in high school, played by Winona Ryder, and she has fallen into a clique of Heathers. So this is the mean girls of the 1980s, only it's gonna come at a time that a whole bunch of John Hughes movies had already come out where everything was happy and peppy in the high school years. And this is gonna be the dark satire on that because Veronica, she's gonna meet Christian Slater, who's doing his best Jack Nicholson impression, and also just his self because Christian Slater is kind of Jack Nicholson. Yeah, I, I saw somewhere that Christian Slater said that he was channeling Jack Nicholson for this movie. And I thought, when are you not channeling Jack Nicholson? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that as a bad thing, necessarily. I think Christian Slater, he's a good actor, but you can never not notice that he has that same crackly voice going on. His eyebrows are always super arched. I'm like. Yeah, yeah, his little squidgy little eyes. It, it's working because he's going to come in as the bad boy and he's going to try to woo Veronica 
in the way that bad boys do over to the other side. Only in this case, this movie, the bad boys side is actually just a mass string of serial murder that they frame as suicides. And that's pretty much going to be the film, actually. It's just serial killing mean girls in high school until they stop serial killing them for reasons. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You have to draw the line somewhere on how many high school teenagers you kill. And this movie is a very strange blend of genres. It was marketed at first in some ways as a comedy and in other places as an action movie, in some places as a thriller. And it is a little bit all of those things, so that works. But this was a movie a lot of people didn't know what to do with when it first came out and the script was making its rounds in Hollywood. I mean, just looking at the poster that's on IMDb, it shows Winona and Christian like in this cute little embrace in the classroom and I look at that and I think uh, that is not what happens in this movie or that's that's not what this movie is this is not a, a lovely little romantic tale of some high school students Dan Waters the screenwriter to Heathers not mm. to be confused with John Waters totally different Waters Aww. hated that poster initially but did remark that In a way, it was sort of a blessing in disguise because back when movie rentals were still a thing, kids could actually rent this movie because it had such a sanitized cover that nobody bothered to check the rating on the back. So (laughs) you were able to just go in and rent this film when you were under 17, which was the market audience of a sort. So in prep for this episode today, Mm -hmm. I did watch the Heather's commentary with the screenwriter and the producer and the director. Oh, lots of guys on there. None of them John Waters. None of them John Waters, but Daniel Waters is going to be one of them. And yeah, so I'm going to bring that to the episode today, as well as just a bunch of other annotations. But yeah, Daniel Waters, curious, curious guy. It's a little pre-production stuff. He is amazingly, unabashedly pretentious. Oh, no. I I don't think I have seen such openly acknowledged pretension since, like, talking to you. I mean, I was going to say, if you or I are watching something and saying, like, wow, that's really pretentious, pretty high levels of pretension that are clearly happening. Yeah, oh, my God. It was next level. It was totally next level. (laughs) So he openly admitted that he initially wrote this film as a 296 page script or something like that. I think it was maybe 256 pages. He he sort of changed the numbers around a little bit. (laughs) And it was because because this was going to be his script as the satirical comedy that would attack all in every teen movie. This was his magnum opus and the only director that was going to be able to direct such a magnum opus was of course Stanley Kubrick. And Stanley Kubrick could get away with doing a three-hour movie, so he wrote a three-hour script. Okay, first of all, 250-whatever pages is not a three-hour movie. 180 pages is a three-hour movie. 250 pages, that's something that should be, you know, something that HBO Max puts out. Yeah, that's like a two-season miniseries. Yeah. But I think he was maybe exaggerating a little bit on the page number, but he was not exaggerating on the fact that initially when he was writing this as his freshman offering to script writing that he figured, yes, Stanley Kubrick's just going to pick this up and he's going to direct it and everything's going to be fine. Wow, that is some just peachy king naivete looking at the film industry. Yeah, he was super excited about it. He openly admitted 
it was one of the more pretentious things that he's ever thought, but not the most, because he's going to have plenty of more pretentious <laughs> viewpoints on his life and his writing sense. So once again, he openly acknowledges how pretentious he is. Good And God. instead of Stanley Kubrick calling him up to offer to direct this film, Mike Lehman is going to enter the scene. And where he comes from, because this is also his first official feature film, but he had done a student short for USC called Beaver Gets a Boner. Whoa. And this is a 20-minute short. What? Yes. What's uh, that about? It apparently remains one of the more highly enjoyed USC short films to come out of that program. Okay. But it tells the story, as far as I can recall or remember, that has a little bit of a Heather's vibe because there's a high school dude who... I think he like flushes some drugs and then has to go on an odyssey to try to make up the money. It's a little bit go as well. (laughs) Has to make up the money to pay back the drug dealer. And they're just some irredeemable, gross high schoolers in this. And so there was a dark comedic element to this Beaver Gets a Boner 20 minute short. (laughs) It's just Daniel Waters (laughs) recalls going up to stay with some friends at Silver Lake. And everybody was talking about this Mike Lehman guy that was in the film program with them and that he needed to direct this script because they matched in humor. So that's how it initially got set up, these two, to shop this around to different studios. Apparently, a lot of studios liked the script. They thought it was funny, but their immediate responses were, nobody's ever going to produce this film. (laughs) This is a (laughs) non-marketable, non-sellable film. This is irreverent. It's going to increase the likelihood that teens are going to commit suicide. It's celebrating teen suicide. We won't touch this. Mm -hmm. And then New Line Pictures came along and said, okay. And the direct quote from Waters was, in a moment of weakness, (laughs) they signed on and let us do the film. They're actually going to go out of business, New Line is, around the time that they were ready to release this movie. And so this movie is going to get no marketing upon its release because New Line was already oh, on the way out and wow. getting bought by other companies. But <laughs> yeah, so this this film has quite a strange little origin among just newly, freshly minted film people in their early 20s. It's going to shoot for 32 days in Los Angeles and it's going to have no marketing. And eventually it is going to become a worldwide cult classic beloved by many as you do yeah Yeah. what's the best thing about this film i would say it's overall artistic style i said the same thing about last week's film swordfish i think the difference here is that the artistic style is also a huge contributing factor to the storytelling that's going on here from the color choices the lighting choices the camera choices those glorious wide-angle lenses that get right up on our actors' faces to just heighten the weird, surreal quality that's going on in this movie. All of that comes together in a beautiful way. So, yeah, definitely best thing about this movie, artistic style. Yeah. Best thing for me is that this movie is hilarious. I find it so funny. I love the sentences, the quotability (laughs) out of it, the dark humor, Mm -hmm. the fact that it's taking some very disturbing, dark themes and just going at him full mm-hmm. force in this irreverent, bonkers way. Yeah, I love the irreverence of this film. I think it really captures something. What is the worst thing about this film? The worst thing about this film is really nothing that's the film's fault. It's just the sad fact that there are elements of this film that are very hard to watch today. There's the obvious school shooting element at play there, and also just some homophobia in here. 
I've learned that I really, it's not my place to say if it's offensive to the gay community or not, but a lot of ugly language in this film, to be sure. Yeah, there is. And that's my worst thing, too, with an asterisk to a certain extent, because as I've mentioned before in other episodes, I am a member of the LGBT community, and it is fascinating that... I, and then many of us queer kids, we do love this movie. This movie (laughs) is a cult classic among the queer community for reasons. There is a lot of very uncomfortable uses of homophobia and homophobic language in this film. It is given to two specific characters that are supposed to be contextualized as these horrible people that we kind of want to see die and their homophobia is a part of that. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the homophobia prevails in the overall narrative, more in these two specific characters that then get their comeuppance, Mm -hmm. which is why the movie itself is not homophobic, but these characters certainly are. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's any more enjoyable to watch these two characters be and use homophobia in their daily Mm -hmm. life and language. But ultimately, I'm not saying that every queer kid loves this film, but a lot of us do. A lot of us do. And we will look (laughs) kind of throughout a little bit at some of those places and why this film is still beloved or who loves this film and why. All right, so shall we just dive right into this? I think we need to just K the fuck out of this Syrah and get going into this film. Yeah. And let's let's open with a little K Syrah, shall we? Let's... When I was just a yeah. So this song is going to come filtering into the screen while the title card is still emerging on our screen as well. So a little extra diegetic, extra diegetic stuff. The song is Que Sera Sera, Whatever Will Be Will Be. It's a perfect song selection in a way to open this film because it does have a certain just attitude, I suppose, about pressure and perfection Mm -hmm. and dreaming and wish fulfillment in the place of little girls in society. That, however, is not why this song was selected. Oh? Why this song was selected was because where this song comes from is from a Hitchcock film, The Man Who Knew Too Much. And that's the remake of Man Who Knew Too Much because Hitchcock made a same titled (laughs) film in the 30s Uh, and then is going to remake his own film with different plots and themes and characters in 1956. He did that with, yeah, a few of his films from his early (laughs) English films. Hitchcock apparently himself said, like, my early work wasn't very good. I want to get a do-over on these films. Yeah, and it's like, well, you could just leave that behind and just pick a new (laughs) title. But some of them have to do with how earlier studio systems worked in Hollywood and contracts and stuff, so whatever. Mm. But, yeah, Hitchcock is going to have this remake of his own film in 1956 called The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Doris Day in that film is going to sing the song at a piano. And this is an original song written for that film. It did win the Academy Award for Best Original Song that year, and it became this popularized idea of cheerful fatalism. And I just love that (laughs) expression, cheerful fatalism. Dan Waters in the commentary mentioned that he really just wanted to impress Kubrick with the reference. (laughs) That is why he picked this Is that what he thinks is going to be the impressive thing to Stanley Kubrick? 
I cannot stress enough how unabashedly pretentious Waters was in this commentary and how obsessed he is with Stanley Kubrick. These are the two things I took away from Dan Waters. I want to live in the alternate universe where this was Stanley Kubrick's follow-up to Full Metal Jacket. Right? Dan Waters wanted to live in that world, too. That was his dream. The whole world would have said, Stanley, you zigged when we thought you were going to zag. Go you. Yeah, no, you and him, that you dream the same, I guess. But here what's happening is, yes, the song is playing, and it, whether or not Stanley Kubrick was impressed by the song choice or not is a very apt song moment because it does have, yeah, when I was just a little girl, what would I be, right? Stanley Kubrick was working on a Holocaust movie at that time, for God's sakes. What was this? <laughs> that was his thing after after Full Metal Jacket. He spent years trying to put a Holocaust movie together called The Aryan Papers. And <laughs> I'm just like, oh, fuck this Holocaust movie. I need to do this high school movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think Waters. <laughs> so just so funny what he me. saw Kubrick doing was that he continuously went around and made that punctuation stamp on the end-all be-all of different genre movies sure. in terms okay. of yeah, looking back and retrospectively parroting mm-hmm. with this kind of dark sarcasm different genres. So he was hoping that Stanley Kubrick would want to round out his oeuvre with a dark high school movie since, and this is another thing we can't stress enough, how popular teen films mm-hmm. were in the 1980s. So Heather's is going to come in 1989, filmed in 88, but now credited as an 89 film. Yeah. After a decade of John Hughes movies and the like that were marketing themselves towards the teen experience. And yet those films are happy. They're light. They're going to deal with a lot of the earlier setup tropes of cliques and the girl who's dissatisfied with her life that meets the bad boy. And this is going to become a little bit self-aware or a lot (laughs) self-aware in a way that the other 80s movies weren't. So, yeah. Waters thought Kubrick would appreciate the the dark, cheerful fatalism of this film, I guess. Yeah. I could, you could kind of say that Clockwork Orange isn't that far removed from others. Not in some so ways, much, but... no. And I definitely I can respect the game of hoping that Stanley Kubrick would get off on the fatalism that you're going for in the script. That's a fair approach to take there. Again, it's just the idea of an, a freshman. No, I mean, it's hilarious. Screenwriter it's... saying, like, I'm going to get Stanley Kubrick for my movie. Yeah. Like, okay, Yeah, kid. yeah you are. Maybe one let's, day. Let's slow so, your roll and well, talk to this guy who made a short film instead. We'll, the we'll other see. thing Dan Waters is going to go on to do is actually kind of fascinating, too, because he hasn't written that many screenplays over the course of his screenwriting life, but Heather's is going to be his first one. Then he's going to do Batman Returns. Oh, okay. And... Demolition Man. Dan Waters is the one who brought us Demolition Man. Oh, do we have him to thank for the three seashells? Was that him? We do. Oh yeah. my God. He's the three seashells. And then, yeah, he's going to do the Vampire Academy adaptation script much later. Oh, so it's a very bizarre collection of screenplays, but wow. none of them so far directed by Kubrick, you know? So these Heathers are playing some croquet in the garden. We're going to open, and there's this big red scrunchie, because scrunchies. Motherfucking scrunchies, man. It's three women. We're getting them in fragmented parts, kind of like on Killer Joe, that abstract cubism of just getting our characters introduced in fragments. Mm. Yep. We're going to get these introduced by the red scrunchie and the curly blonde hair and the saddle shoes with the different primary color stockings. 
these shoes step over the chicken wire that is surrounding the flower beds. They're just gonna, They're just gonna crush those flowers. Walking over these flowers like some bitchy Power Rangers in their color coding, I swear. Yeah, they're just <laughs> gonna crush those wickered in roses like these totally privileged bitches they are because they don't got time to walk around. And then we find that they are playing croquet in this garden and all of their clothing selections match their mallets and the color of their croquet balls. Well, and this is just so iconic. This is going to carry over into all the adaptations. The bitch rangers, man, they're suited up and they're, you know, the red bitch ranger, the green bitch ranger, the yellow bitch ranger. Yeah. Right together. And they're all named Heather, mm-hmm. as we're going to find very quickly as each one turns and says, it's your turn, Heather. Oh, thanks, Heather. And then a little bit later, Heather, pay attention. So we have introduced in this opening dialogue exchange, all these bitches, they're named Heather. Heather, Heather, Heather. Also totally iconic. Yeah. All right, so croquet. (laughs) Croquet. Oh, yeah, that They are playing some goddamn uh, croquet. Yeah, croquet. Good game if you got the balls. In another random rabbit hole descent of things that I will look up for these podcasts that I never anticipated looking up in my life. How did you not already know about croquet? I thought you did. No, I I knew about croquet, but I spent way too long watching how to play croquet videos. Oh, that is a dark YouTube rabbit hole to go down. It is. It gets, like, weird. My soul was full of darkness for many hours. Actually, I didn't watch them for hours. I don't know. Because, yeah, I knew about croquet. I didn't know how to play it, though. What I gathered from these how-to-watch-croquet videos is that croquet is just a ridiculous game. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm not sure I understand it anymore. Yeah, when I, had, when I was a kid, my childhood home, we had a croquet set that we would have out in the front yard. And I don't recall there being any sense of rhyme or reason to what we were doing. I just knew you get the ball through the little white hoop thingy. The wicket. Yeah, the dash. Yeah. Yeah, I watched those videos. Okay, it's yeah, you watched the videos. Yeah, but no one no one cared about where the actual balls were going. Yeah, so these, these chicks care, though. The Heathers care. And apparently why this game was picked, Croquet was picked as a game, according to the producers, was it was because it was the most, direct quote here, the most refined, civilized game that is also the cruelest. So Fair enough. That's how they think of Croquet. But... There are many forms of croquet one can play. What they appear to be playing here is a not entirely accurate version of nine-wicket croquet, which is mostly a quote-unquote backyard croquet style uh. that is played in Canada and the U.S. Okay. In this, you've got you know your wickets, you've got your little different colored balls. The course is arranged in a diamond pattern, and there's going to be a stake at one end of each course. So you start at the stake, and you're hitting these little balls through these little wickets, until you hit what's called the turning stake, and then you navigate your way back. Often croquet is played in pairs, but if you're all out for your own individual playstyle, it's called cutthroat croquet. So that's going to be a fun starting metaphor for this movie, is that we're playing a game of cutthroat croquet that seems all civilized, but is actually underneath teething with anger and <laughs> cruelty. Because a lot of the things that you can do in croquet is hitting other people's balls out, fucking other people over, (laughs) sabotaging each other. And I am not going to get into the nitty-gritty details of how you get bonus shots in croquet. I put the time in, but I'm not going to do it. (laughs) But what we do watch these girls do here in this opening is do a lot of things that don't seem like it should be part of a sport. Like, they're picking up their balls, they're moving them all around, (laughs) they're pushing them up against other people's balls and knocking their balls out, and you're like, how... What are the rules? I think that this opening bit is less about getting their balls through the wickets and more about 
well, what we're about to see them actually doing with the balls. Yeah, so, well, this is the thing is, so yeah, one of them hits the croquet ball and we get the reverse shot to find that Winota Ryder is buried in the ground. So just her head is sticking out and this ball has been chucked towards her head, really, and it's going to bounce off of it. Now, why I brought up those stakes before, where you have the starting stake and the turning stake, is that Veronica's head here seems to be acting as the turning stake and or the turning point in the game. So we're already starting out here in <laughs> what is essentially the turning point of our narrative, We've already missed out on how Veronica has become friends with these girls and the beginnings of that wily game she was playing, but we're actually getting introduced, and this was deliberately on purpose, we're getting introduced right at the beginning at her turning point in her narrative of her friendship with these girls. She's already starting to get a little frustrated. That's the wordplay that'll get you Stanley Kubrick to direct your film. Yeah, exactly, exactly. This is a Kubrick script, man. And if that isn't enough of a metaphor already, one more metaphorical point, and then we can move on from this goddamn croquet. Yeah. (laughs) So there is an alternate endgame in croquet that's called Poison. And in this variant, a player who has scored the last wicket but not hit the starting stake becomes what's known as a poison ball, which may eliminate other balls from the game. Sort of just like this person who basically is like an assassin, right? And the last person remaining is the winner. Metaphors, yo, because that is what Winona Ryder, aka Veronica, is going to be, right? She's going to become this poison ball that's going to start taking out all these other bitches one by one. Because so far she's she's clearly losing the game because she's not even playing in it. But I do like that there's all of this strange wordplay that goes on with the game rules of croquet in terms of cutthroat and poison and takeout that are going to be really apt metaphorical overlays to how the rest of this movie is going to progress. It's a subtle art with non-subtle language. That is this movie. One day, Waters, he learned about croquet, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to write a whole film as a metaphor for the game of croquet. Yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to give me some Kubrick. Side note, though, croquet has a set order in which the players play, and it's according to their color. And considering color is so important in this movie, you think that would be the other thing that they would go with with croquet, but apparently they do not abide by the proper (gasps) color turn order roles. Because, yeah, I was watching this with our friend Pharmacist Chris, and he apparently knows croquet and how to play it well. Well, he's a pharmacist. Yeah, he was a pharmacist, so of course he knows croquet, uh-huh. right? Like, that just goes hand in hand. And that was his main takeaway. It was like, wait a second. Like, red shouldn't be going right now. And I'm like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> metaphors, pharmacist Chris, metaphors. That's what's important here. Not color order. Like, red Heather needs to be red Heather, even if she has to go out of order. So, so. you know what I always say? Audience believes the impossible, not the improbable, Exactly, though, man. exactly. So you've got all these metaphorical overlays, but no, they don't get the color order right. So, you know. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. And in croquet, like, the mallets themselves are referred to as roke mallets, which this is a bizarre tangent, but in the original novel, The Shining, that's what the dad is trying to kill people with is a roke mallet. And when Stanley Kubrick made the movie, he's like, yeah, fuck that, it's an axe, because that looks badass. And then in that Stephen King-helmed remake miniseries that came out in the 90s, they used the actual mallet from the book, and it looks ridiculous, so, yeah. Oh, man, so... Do we think that croquet is also an effort to get Stanley Kubrick's attention? Or is it a fuck-up? I think that's what it's a fuck-up. 
Stanley Kubrick saw that is like, no, no, I've, I've flirted yeah. with that bullshit before. And now Stephen King hates my guts because I use an axe in the movie. So you yeah, fuck anything having to do with croquet, kid. We just unlocked the mystery as to why Stanley Kubrick did not pick up this script. And yeah. It was because it had croquet mallets. Well, yeah, th- Come on, Water- Dan Waters. Waters was a, he was a young kid. He didn't know. It's like well known in Hollywood. If you want Stanley Kubrick to do your movie, you do not put croquet in it. Everyone knew that back in the day, but he didn't know. So rookie mistake. Yeah, it's all right, man. It's all right. We all, we've all been there. Yeah. We all make that mistake once or twice in our lives. When I was re-watching this, my memory did a weird thing where I said to myself, wait a minute, where's the scene where Veronica meets the Heathers? Where's the scene where they become friends? And I realized there is no scene like that in the movie, but the last time I saw anything Heathers related, it was when I was watching the musical Heathers, which yeah. musical Heathers is a thing from 2010. Very fun musical. I've seen it performed. Awesome numbers. Great show. Really lends itself to the Broadway show experience because it can be as crazy as it wants to be. And it's awesome. But there is an opening scene there where the Heathers begin to like Veronica because she's very good at forging things or forging handwriting, as we'll see mm-hmm. later on. It's And she forges a note from a teacher that gets them out of detention. And that's why they become friends. And so watching this, I thought, no way, I, I swear, there, there's some bit where mm-hmm. we meet the Heathers and they meet Veronica. What's going on here? And No, because no, we're entering at the turning point. This is, yeah. <laughs> we missed the first half of the game already. Turning point. Boom. It's, oh. It couldn't be more clear, Benji. I mean, <laughs> the turning stake of Veronica's head. <laughs> Learn to extract your metaphors, man. I don't know how to help you. Yes, but Veronica, Turning Point Veronica, looks right into the camera to just say, Dear Diary. Yeah, automatically. This film is going to be a little weird. Yeah. (laughs) We get the fourth wall break, and she's just going to start talking to us in voiceover. It's going to be magnificent sentences. Like, she told me if you're going to fuck with the eagles, you're going to need to learn how to fly. (laughs) (laughs) amazing amazing Uh, oh so very good but yes then we go to the high school where veronica as i think working on something she's writing in her journal which we'll see a lot of throughout the movie and she writes i love that way she writes because it's big letters big cursive and she writes really fast oh she's super manic but the letters actually bug me because they're so big she's just wasting pages and pages (laughs) in this diary by taking an entire piece of paper to write one sentence because her handwriting is gigantic and super loopy and super manic. So I did learn from the commentary that this break in the fourth wall and this strange switch to all of a sudden addressing the audience is, well, it's coming from two places. I'll get into the second one in a little bit. But the first one is as a deliberate reference or tribute to the tradition of first-person narration in young adult novels Generally, when you have a young female protagonist in the young adult genre or what is also even before the young adult move in the 20th century, we get these way far back is just this idea of first person confessional prose, the heroine that's going to address the audience in the first person. And so Waters wanted a little bit of that first person narration style. And this is how he's bringing it in as a tribute to that style of literature. All right, that's fair. That's fair. Which I think is kind of cool. I'll allow it. I will allow it. Yes. Nobody cares what you'll allow. Moving on. Moving on. Veronica is summoned to the cafeteria by the Heathers. This is a huge space. They're actually shooting in a cafeteria. This is a high school that's in Corvallis, so in the valley. Once again, this Mm -hmm. is all shot in the greater Los Angeles area. And 
this is where we start to learn just how many goddamn wide-angle lenses they are going to use throughout the rest of this film. It is a huge space. There's tons of people. There are a lot of different viewpoint shots. So Waters, once again, for inspiration, he had the producer and the director and some of the actors watch the barracks scene in Full Metal Jacket. Uh... (laughs) Because he wanted to stylistically embody that vibe here in the cafeteria okay all right well that does explain that bit where the heathers are walking around saying this is my rifle this is my gun this is for fighting this is for fun grabbing their crotches over and over again so that okay that does help contextualize things a little bit which i mean they do kind of (laughs) in their own teen high school way right they are setting up their arsenal of weapons which instead of being physical assault rifles or a little bit more their cattiness and the notes that they're going to start torturing other classmates with. So this is a strange, hazing, heckling, prepare for war scene. Mm -hmm. And it is done with a lot of diffused light. So we can see that overlap. One thing to watch for with the cinematography is Francis Kenny, who is the cinematographer, deliberately wanted to start this film out using pastel colors and lots of light diffusion. So we're going to open with that very, very light, airy feel and lots of pastel. And we're going to get that in the cafeteria as well. And then as the movie progresses, we're going to start taking out the pastels and the diffusion. And we're going to add a little bit richer, more jewel tones so that by the end of the movie, we're actually very brightly jeweled toned from the pastel that opened because Mm. the movie's going to get physically progressively darker in light tones. And that's pretty cool because it's theming. But Red Heather decides that a character named Martha Dunstock, who they call Martha Dumptruck because they're mean girls, Mm -hmm. needs to be the recipient of a prank that will give her shower nozzle masturbation material for weeks. What Uh, is this prank? So the prank is that they are going to have Veronica forge a letter from one of the jocks to Martha. And apparently Veronica just knows what the jock's handwriting looks like. Or maybe it doesn't even really matter what the hell his actual handwriting looks like. But Veronica writes a fake letter. Heather 3 takes the letter, puts it on the lunch tray of Martha. And we get some strange sound effects going on in this little... This little bit here. And this is Heather 3 taking the letter up to Martha and behind her back placing it on her lunch tray. Yeah. So what this does sort of sound like and is weirdly reminiscent of is some sort of teen feminized version of... The Friday the 13th Jason Voorhees theme song, or theme effects. And in a way, this is deliberately evocative, as we're going to find out a little bit later, too, with our character Jason Dean, that this cafeteria is, in some ways, a slasher horror space that we're getting set up here because we are going to start mowing people down in a certain way in a 80s slasher variety but yeah so we have 
our girls here in their full metal jacket extension that are preparing for either war and or to start their very hyper-focused slaying of their classmates. And when they're writing this note, my favorite moment in the entire movie in terms of subtlety, not subtlety, is Red Heather saying, Veronica needs something to write on. Heather, bend over. And we get this low-angle shot of Shannon Doherty in her green jacket just bending over so that Veronica can use her back as a writing surface. It is such a cruel, amazing power move. There are tables around. I mean, they are at a cafeteria (laughs) surrounded by tables. And it's just an amazing, yeah, total baller power play. Had to walk two feet, probably have a riding surface. But nope, no, we need to have Heather, green Heather. (laughs) Yeah, and we see this extension of this bullying that she feels and this pressure. But we're going to cut to the bathroom. And green Heather is bulimic, even though bulimia is so 87, according to Red Heather. Oh, and yeah. Veronica is going to go help her out. Because Green Heather is going to call, like, hey, Veronica, I need your help. And Veronica holds up one finger, crooks it a little bit, and says, a friend's work is never done. Goes into the stall, pulls out a fingernail file, and starts filing her fingernail down as this conversation is continuing, as this... Once again, subtle, not subtle reference that she's about to help Green Heather throw up, lend her a finger, as it were. But a, a newly filed down finger, so as not to puncture yeah, her. But we're also missing whatever, the so. incredibly obvious baiting reference to friend. The Shining because we have the characters in front of the mirror and they do that little crooked finger thing. Like, <laughs> I see what you're doing, Walters. I see you trying to, to bait the Kubrick. Yeah, that he did not bring up as a deliberate Kubrick reference, but maybe, since he's bringing everything else in, why not? Why the hell not? And after Heather has, I guess, you know, done what she needs to do, also there's a great edit where... Oh, we get such a good cut. Heather 1 says, Yeah, fine, Heather. Let's take another look at yesterday's lunch. And... Cut, cut to jump cut. this high school cafeteria slop that's just being scraped off of a pan into the trash. And it's gooey and sticky. And you're like, oh, wow. It's so good. It's so okay, good. Okay. Very well done. And now the Heathers decide it's time to do their high school poll, the lunchtime poll. I guess that's just a thing that they do. So, yes, they're going to ask this really thought-provoking question. What is that question? You win $5 million from Publishers Clearinghouse, and on the day that the Ed guy brings you the check, you find out that aliens have landed, and they're gonna blow up the Earth in two days. What do you do? Yeah, and they're gonna ask all of the, not the most popular kids, because those are the Heathers, but the adjacency the rich popular kids. kids. And there's this guy who looks like he's maybe 38 and responds in a similar fashion with, well, I just slide that wad right over to my father because, you know, he is one of the top investment brokers in, I don't remember, the, the tri-state area, Ohio, Some, the world. Like, you know, the world. Know. Or if we're going by the geography of this movie, like, uh, my dad, he's still one of the best power brokers in all of northwestern Ohio. Like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't fuck with that guy. And there's this other chick who's going to give it all to charity. And Veronica's like, you're beautiful. Even though we can tell by the way she delivers that, she doesn't think she's beautiful at all. And Heather picks up, Red Heather picks up on that shade. Because she asks, like, why why you got to be like that, right? Veronica, mm-hmm. she's like, I, I don't know. Maybe we could just talk to different types of people. Huh. 
So that's a reasonable thing to say. I want to talk yeah. to different kinds of people. As is the reasonable response that we get, which is, fuck me gently with a chainsaw. <laughs> Who do I look like? Mother Teresa? Fuck me gently with a chainsaw. Such an amazing phrase. <laughs> so, yeah, Veronica, she just wants to, to talk to different types of people, right? Uh-huh. And some of these people include her old best friend, Betty Finn. Oh, Betty. Who Veronica Betty. Yeah. has completely dismissed mm -hmm. in order to become friends with the Heathers. Now, I'm not going to bring up Betty Finn a lot throughout this movie, but I do think it's important to establish one thing about Betty Finn. Yeah. And that's that Betty Finn is played by Renee Estevez, who is the daughter of Martin Sheen, a.k.a. the sister of Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen. Oh! Huh. And Roman Estevez. But, okay. Yeah. I just find it super fascinating. They have one girl in the family, huh. and this is little Betty Finn, who is playing Veronica's old best friend, named Betty deliberately as a Betty and Veronica reference, as well as a... So we were going to have Veronica Sawyer... And Betty Finn, and so that's also a Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn reference. And according to Waters, these are the two most ultimate friendships in literary <laughs> history, are Betty and Veronica and Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. And so they're an amalgamation of both. They were the best of friends. Okay. And yet the Heather's power was too strong. They managed to break him up. All right. Okay. I, I don't know why he didn't uh, snag Kubrick for this with, exactly. with that kind of uh, deep dive knowledge just throwing out there on the script that's kind of uh that's yeah. epic though another different type of person that veronica is going to go and talk to is christian slater he's finally going to get some lines in this film finally and yes those those lines are uh, as we said at the very top there greetings and salutations like ah, ha, 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 yeah, okay. there's an entrance yeah you're gonna be that guy aren't you oh boy he is that guy <laughs> that is also greetings and salutations is gonna be used in demolition man as well one of the characters keeps saying greetings and salutations so this is another just waters thing apparently was it, was it still like yo greetings, greetings and salutations I, I can't remember which character uses it but that, you can't even say that like stallone so yeah <laughs> yeah i don't think it's stallone that says it no probably but, not <laughs> Veronica's going to go up and she's going to ask Jason Dean, Christian Slater's character, Jason Dean, this question. He thinks it's a stupid question, but he says he'd take a boat out with some booze and some bock and play a sax, you know? Uh-huh. Veronica's just like, how very. How very, yeah. I love that she says, hey, this is a stupid question. He replies, well, there are no such things as a stupid question. She asks the question, well, that's the stupidest question I've ever heard. Like, Okay, dude. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go. Christian Slater in this is a mood. He is a very specific Fuck mood. off with your carnation milk and your, your saxophone playing ass. Come on. Yeah, with your little trench coat and your attitude and your Jack Nicholson impersonation. <laughs> now, his name is really setting up this character here. So we're going to have this character, Jason Dean, because he's basically Jason Voorhees and James Dean in one person. The porn star? No, the actor James Dean. <laughs> I mean, I guess porn star is an actor as well. There's another James Dean that's not a porn star? <laughs> Rebel Without a Cause, James huh. Dean, who unfortunately never got around to doing porn uh. because he died tragically in a car accident. But we all would have loved to see that day. James Dean is going to be most well-known for his film Rebel Without a Cause from mm -hmm. 1955. And that film is a look at a listless youth and rebellion culture that are three kids that are misunderstood because they have problems because they have parents, and their parents aren't great. The title of Rebel Without a Cause was adopted from this psychiatrist book, Robert Lindner's 1944 book, 
Rebel Without a Cause, the hypoanalysis of a criminal psychopath. Hello. Now, Rebel Without a Cause is not actually fully going to get into any sort of hypoanalysis uh-huh. of criminal psychopaths, but they're going to take the beginning of that. This film is actually going to start going where Rebel Without a Cause and their James Dean character did not go and are actually going to delve into the fact that, no, this is not a misunderstood youth. He is actually a criminal psychopath, <laughs> which we're going to come to see as the movie goes on. And because of that criminal psychopath nature of our Jason Dean character, we also get a Jason Voorhees reference. That's going to be, of course, from the Friday the 13th, 1980 movie, in which Jason Voorhees is bullied. And then in the subsequent movies, not technically the first one, as many a horror fan knows, but the second one, Zanon, he's going to kill the popular bullies, and then he's just going to keep on going. Right? The bullies are not going to be enough. He just wants to kill everybody. And yeah, so we've got this this combination. Once again, because this film didn't know how to market itself and or be one genre and so Uh the i guess the european producers were pressuring them to go a little bit more thriller and so they brought in a lot of friday the 13th references into this film (laughs) in order to appease the production companies that wanted to have a thriller uh yeah yeah so we've got jason in high school Mm -hmm. makes sense at least jason Voorhees' mother liked him though we're gonna find out that this Jason Dean or JD, his mother didn't like him so much, but whatever. Uh, yeah, that's definitely a story, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, some jocks themselves enjoying the great taste of carnation milk because they have like six empty cartons of this milk on, on their lunch table. They look over at the new kid and say, yeah, let's go fuck with that guy. Walk over to him and say some very unfortunate things, uh, very homophobic things. It's, yeah, nasty. And then uh, Jason, JD, he decides, well... All right, you had that to say. I'll go ahead and do this now. Stands up, pulls out of gun. We hear a bang and cut to the next scene. Abrupt cuts. And holy shit, yeah. When I was re-watching this, I just thought, oh dear God, what the hell happened here? Yeah, he just pulls out a pistol and point blank shoots them both in the chest. And we get such a quick cut that we're not quite sure what the aftermath of that was. <laughs> Did we actually see that? What the yeah. fuck happened there? We're like, is that a dream? The next scene is the Heather saying, oh, he'll just probably get suspended. He used blanks. And this is one of those things that I don't, the term did not age well. I don't know. That feels a little cliche to say. I don't know. Because obviously today, school shootings, you wouldn't do this in a movie nowadays. Or if you did, it was it would be treated much differently if it was done nowadays. School shootings were a thing. I won't dwell too much on the stats because that's not a very fun rabbit hole to go down. But school shootings were a thing at the time. There are two school shootings that happened in 1988 when this was made, where one where six kids died, another where five children died. And so it was a thing back then. I guess it just wasn't, you know, we were we weren't at Columbine. Yeah. Yeah, it's not gonna be for another ten years though. That was nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, so it was a it was a long ways off. And like I said, it, yeah, this would be treated much differently. So school shootings just weren't really on the mind of people the way that they are now. What we have seen now with the media coverage that school shootings get when they do happen really changes the perspective you would have watching something like this. Uh, here, it's just kind of, it's a joke, practically. The fact that he uses blanks just means like, oh, he's fucking harmless. He just used blanks in the pistol. Like, well, no, you still brought a deadly weapon into the school. That would get you expelled today if not arrested. 
Let's part of the entire tone of this movie is going to make some very dark humor scenarios and situations mm-hmm. out of not just school shootings, but teen suicide, yeah. date rape, bulimia, anxiety issues. This is in no particular order of severity of <laughs> yeah. what's going on, but serial murder. So there's yeah. a lot of things that are just being taken tongue in cheek here. And so it depends on if you're just on board for this ride or not. Yeah, I think that the style of the movie is helps that out a lot and softens it a little bit more. And I mentioned earlier the Broadway show, the fact that a Broadway show can be super crazy and super out there makes the violence a little bit easier to stomach because it's treated in such a absurd way that you don't really have anything realistic to grab onto. And this movie does a good job balancing that too. It's still, it's still like made me jump when this moment came up. I just like, Oh yeah. God, why? Yeah. And this moment, I didn't focus as much on the shooting part as much as the homophobic language. Right. And yeah. The things that are going down here. This is, where when I mentioned in the opening, best things, worst thing, that in some ways we need this language. Let's get mm-hmm. asterisks on need. But the bullies behaving in such a manner here, this heinously egregious, offensive manner, for a, not all watchers, but for the queer audience that likes this movie, mm-hmm. allows us to absolve Jason Dean much more quickly. <laughs> like, he's still our hero. Yeah. Because... Right? Yeah. Like, it's more like, okay, cool. Like, he just terrified those dudes by, like, just trying to shoot them in the face. Like, yeah, I kind of wanted to do that, too. Like, still on your side, Jason Dean. And that's where Veronica is going to be coming in as this outsider, too. So she's also put in that position. And we see her in the scene where everyone is complaining he should be expelled. And Veronica's like, no way. He just used blanks. Like, they were assholes. The only thing that got ruined was a pair of pants. So she's our outsider voice here that is also getting a little bit seduced and lured in by Jason Dean's attitude and actions because to her, what the perpetrators that got shot were doing beforehand was actually a much more egregious violation of morality and common decency Mm -hmm. than what Jason Dean did. So, yeah, I guess it's kind of like a a perspective, but I'm like, fuck yeah, they got shot. (laughs) Do it, Jason Dean, do it. Fuck those assholes. And in the next scene, the the Heathers and Veronica are discussing how, well, one, yes, he'll probably, Jason will, probably just be suspended and that the only thing he really ruined were their pants because we're just left to assume that these jocks and bullies they shit themselves when he pulled out the gun which yeah that's a reasonable response yeah i mean blanks can and often will fuck someone up though not a great idea but we we just let that happen blanks tend to be something that's used in movies a lot as a no harm, no foul, no damage uh, type of situation, yeah. but mm. there's still a lot of force that's packed in there. I mean, it can kill you if you do it the right way, so yeah, don't fuck with that. Not cool. No. Hey, you know what I miss? You know what I've been missing like between all this, like the shooting and the homophobia? I could really go for some croquet right about yeah. now, and I think we're going to get some more croquet. Yeah, and this was, as we mentioned, the first scene they shot, so they had croquet in the mind. We're going to get more of them just saying each other's names. They're going to say each other's names a whole, whole bunch. <laughs> and this is where I'm going to talk about that good old name database that I pulled out on Hocus Pocus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I've forgotten bygone age of our Hocus Pocus yeah. episodes. So on the Hocus Pocus episode, I went into a deep dive on the name Thackeray and how common that was. So 
The name database through the Social Security website will keep track of how many people are registered with a name in a given year. And so I went to look up Heather and Veronica and such things, because Jason is also feeling Veronica, too. And at some point, he's going to kind of come up to her and ask, like, so are you a Heather, too? And she's like, no, I'm a Veronica. And this is supposed to make her edgy and different from the Heathers. And this whole movie is called The Heathers. So there's a certain idea that the Heathers or Heather is a very popular name around this time. Sure. And I wanted to know if that was true. Well. And in fact, indeed, it was true. It was certainly not the number one name in 1988, 89. Really? So... To describe a little bit of the science, the very soft science I did here, the Social Security database is going to talk about how many names were registered being born that particular year. So because of that, looking up the popularity in 1988 doesn't actually help us so much because these are 17-year-old girls, right? So they were actually born in the 70s. Sure, sure. So what's at question here is actually what Heathers was doing as a name in the mid-1970s, and it was doing well. It actually reached its height in 1975 at number three for girls. Oh, interesting. So that was around the time that they would have been born for this 1989 movie. In 1989, it had dropped down to 15th, so girls being born in 1989 were named 15th. That's a tough time for Heathers. But yeah, number three in 1975, and in the 1960s, it was more hovering at like 298. So somehow it made quite a jump between the late 60s and the early 70s. Not a lot of boomer Heathers out there, so that makes sense. Yeah, so Heathers just kind of became a popular name. Veronica, in contrast, is not the most unpopular name of all time. Its height was in 1983 at 68th. In 1975, when the other Heather's name was number three, it was at 82. So it was way less common than number three Heather's. But interestingly enough, today, it's actually way more popular than Heather's. So today, Veronica is in the 350s, whereas Heather is in about the 990s. So Veronica... Way, way more popular. Thanks, Riverdale. Who actually is going to have the most popular name, though, is Jason, our buddy little Jason Dean. (laughs) So this little outsider who's judging people on their names, where he's like, are you a Heather? That number three name back when we were Uh all getting born. Jason reached the number two spot in 1974. Oh, look at you, Jason, on your high and mighty name status. My God. Yeah, exactly. So he uh, he has the most popular name of them all. Did it ever say what, like, what number one for a year was? Uh, so the number one around the time that they would have been born was Jennifer, oh, okay. which is actually why we get Jennifer's body being a, a reference to <laughs> the popularity of the name Jennifer in the 1980s or among teens that were teenagers in the 1980s. The other top names in that era were, so we've got Jennifer, Amy, Michelle, Kimberly, Lisa, Melissa, Angela, Heather, Stephanie, and Rebecca were the top 10. Mm. So, yeah, names. Names, names all around. But yeah, Jason's the most basic out of all of them. Ah, so, basic ass, Jason. Jason, god damn. But these number three Heathers, the three Heathers, the number the three The three Heathers, names, yeah, that works out. There we go. The three, yeah, number three Heathers and Veronica, they finish up their 
croquet game. One of the Heather's moms comes and picks them up. They head out, and Heather talks with her parents for a little bit. And we get some awesome... I love the wide-angle close-ups that they do here. And it's so crazy. That, that's, I love that effect because it really does... Again, it heightens the mood. Wide angles, they're just funny. You put a camera close-up on a wide-angle face, you're like, ah, something goofy is going on here, I think. it's uh, yeah, There's something there. Something there. Yeah, uh, and they're going to repeat the shot throughout the movie like it's some kind of motif all on its own so she keeps having pate with her parents out on the porch they must make great pate yeah and every time she does there's a little exchange quickly with her father where she tells him he's an idiot and he agrees and the mother goes oh you too and then veronica announces great pate but i got a motor or else i'm gonna be late too and then (laughs) fill in the blank so this is a repeated motif that happens the first one is that she's going to be late for the Remington party if she doesn't motor. Mm-hmm. We haven't mentioned the slang in this film yet, but the slang is great. She's got a motor and things are very and phrases like fuck me gently with a chainsaw. <laughs> and none of those are going to be popular slang things in the late 1980s. And this is another deliberate thing where Waters was realizing that the word rad, which I still use all the time because the word rad is rad and yeah. I like it. <laughs> that it was on its way out. And so he was realizing at his young, tender age of 23 that slang had a shelf life. And what was going to make this more palatable later on or throughout time was going to be to create a slang that didn't really belong to any time or place. Mm-hmm. And it's super fun to watch that play out. Well, Stanley Kubrick's not going to make my movie if the slang's dated. I got to do something about that. Yeah. Exactly. It's got to be very, you know. So very. Only the most very things for Stanley Kubrick. It's true. It's time to go to a Remington party. It's an interesting uh, name to use for this. Remington. I mean, it's the name of a school around where they are right now, but Remington is also the name of a gun. So it's that little nuggets put into your head. Just like Remington. Guns. Yeah, I think guns are going to be a thing in this movie. But they stop at a gas station for some slushies and corn nuts because we hear them say corn nuts as Veronica is walking into the not 7-Eleven, even though it's it's a 7-Eleven. Yeah, Red Heather likes her corn nuts. Yeah, in the script, it was a 7-Eleven and they couldn't get the rights. 7-Eleven would not let them use them in this movie because, you know, this is about teen suicide. We will not have the good name of 7-Eleven dragged through the mud with your teenage suicide movie. Yeah, but they were planning on using 7-Eleven, so in the final hour they had to, and that's why we don't really see any clear signs in this gas station as to what type of gas station they're in. There's a lot of generic signs around, and they also had to find ways to talk about turbo dogs like they use the term like turbo dog and some kind of slushy in order to circumvent the 7-eleven trademark phrases well that's the thing they can't say the name of the place but they do need to establish that this is a very cookie cutter style store that would be anywhere in the country because that matters because we run into jd again who explains that his family has moved around a whole lot but his sanctuary is the gas station or the convenience store because it's the same everywhere that he goes. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Yeah. 
And he actually name drops the town that this movie is set in, Sherwood, Ohio, which I thought was just a made-up name. It turns out, no, there is a town in northeastern Ohio called Sherwood, Ohio, or northwestern Ohio, I should say, that apparently its population is about 800 large. And I spent a lot of my childhood living in a town that was about 800 large. And I have to say, this does not look like an 800-people town. Yeah, so... The fact that there is a Sherwood, Ohio is actually a coincidence. Okay, because, I, I figured, yeah. <laughs> yeah, where this name came from, so I also learned this in the commentary, which I found really, really cool, and I'll explain why in a second. Oh, please but, do. Oh, yes, don't worry, don't worry, I got you covered. Uh-huh. Now, <laughs> this, uh-huh. yeah, is in reference to a book called Winesburg, Ohio, which was written in 1919 by the author Sherwood Anderson. Mm. And Winesburg, Ohio is another fictitious town. And this book is a collection of short stories about a small town in Ohio. This was apparently a huge inspirational template for Dan Waters mm-hmm. in the writing of this film and the way that he approached this film. The book itself is a coming-of-age story of a protagonist while also being a collection of just short stories about all the people in the town. Mm. The themes that this book are going to f- focus on are largely on irony and loneliness. Oh, <laughs> and well. those are going to become themes that are very big in Heather's as well. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the themes in this book of being set in this fictitious, very lonely, ironic, bitter town in Ohio where our protagonist is just observing life and trying to get out. There's a style that this is written in, which is very interesting, especially for 1919. And it's mostly in the third person omniscient narrative, but with these occasional breakaways to directly address the reader with these self-conscious comments. And so when I mentioned that there were two reasons we had these Dear Diary breakaway moments, one being as an homage to young adult teen literature, the second one is because the book, Winesburg, Ohio, also does this. It doesn't use the term Dear Diary, but it has these self-conscious breakaways where it directly sort of breaks the fourth wall and addresses the reader. Very nice. Okay. And... Then the final kind of overlap, actually, there's a lot of overlap. It's really interesting to read this book in conjunction with Heather's. And so if you're a huge fan of Heather's, then I recommend it. Check it out because it's in different sections. And the first section is going to be called The Grotesque. And it sets up the premise of the novel in which the main character is reflecting on the people he knew in his lifetime. And he realizes that all of them are what he calls, quote unquote, grotesques. And he decides to write a book about them. The grotesqueness is explained by suggesting that each of them seized on one truth and tried to live by it, but the truth which each embraced became a falsehood. So we see that with our Heather's characters as well. They become these certain idealism tropes that each of them are going to become emblematic of, where we have our main Heather that has that ego, and she just wants the reverence and the worship. She wants to be worshipped at Westerberg High. And we have another one that just wants this power, kind of consumed by the Moby Dick (laughs) envy quest pursuit. And even Jason Dean, or JD, he's going to have his little one idealism that he sees as truth and terms of what he needs to live by. And all of these guys are going to be living by their own self-false prophet 
mm-hmm. views of mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that, yeah, comes from this breakdown of the Winesburg, Ohio book. So out of all of the books that I would say Heather's could possibly be a very loose adaptation of, I wouldn't have thought of Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson until Dan Waters brought it up in the commentary that that's where this all had come from. And then I'm like, you know, that makes so much sense, but I never would have actually put that together. So, yeah. Uh, nice. Cool stuff. So back to the film, we've got... Oh, that's right. We were talking about a movie. Yeah, there, we've got we? JD and we've got Veronica. They meet up in this non-7-11, 7-11. Yep. They flirt over slushies. Good stuff. He goes outside. He gets on his his awesome hog, his awesome motorcycle, because he's a bad. Because he's a bad boy, so of course he rides a motorcycle. Yeah, that's that's how he rolls. Slides up a cigarette because he's a badass. Yeah, there's so much smoking in this movie. There, yeah. There's so much smoking. <laughs> it's always fascinating to just watch a teen movie with a ton of smoking. Yeah, that. I mean, if anything, that's the thing that aged the worst was just how much goddamn smoking these kids are doing. It is yeah, pretty insane. Yeah, and they're all actually smoking. Because I guess like Christian Slater at the time smoked like a whole bunch of packs a day. And that... Winona Ryder was already smoking. So they just smoked in this movie. All right. Well, there you yeah. go. Wow. Okay. After their little meetup, little flirtation happening there, it's a you know very teen cute, not really a meet cute because they've met, but you know it's 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 nice, it's nice. Veronica and the Heather's they arrive at the Remington party, which is a local college they attending a party at. The host does the strangest thing where he says, "Welcome, ladies. Go ahead and throw your coats on the floor." What? Why? It's where they're gonna end up later. I oh just yuck, man. Things are going to happen on that floor. You don't want your coats to be touching that. Get a goddamn coat rack, kid. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a frat party, right? I so, guess, yeah. They don't have coat closets. Um, I don't know. This is an actual fraternity that they filmed at at UCLA. The producer said it was so gross <laughs> going into this frat Dude, frat houses are disgusting. I'm, I'm not proud to say I did rush with a fraternity or two when I was in college and... Of course you did. Yeah, I got to look at that life. I'm like, no, no, this is horrific. Such a follower, such a joiner. <laughs> You're like Heather number three. Uh, or a cultist, if you will. If everybody else jumped off a bridge, would you, Benji, would you? If everyone started committing suicide, would I do it too? Well, we'll have to see. Uh, maybe. I'd do it for you. Uh, what? That's the one thing I'd do for you. I'd help you commit suicide. Oh. I'm nice that way. Okay. I'm just saying I want you dead, Benji. That is the only point Jesus. here out of this conversation. Is it August 19th, 2017? Because it just got dark. What happened on August that, 2017? That was a, the eclipse. Oh, was it? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Whatever. Get out of here with your esoteric references. <laughs> Uh, They're at this Remington party, and all of these college dudes are hitting on this underage snatch, and it's uncomfortable and wonderful at the same time, (laughs) because one of them is all excited that he's hitting on this underage chick because he doesn't have to ask her what her major is, (laughs) and he hates that. And then the conversation just dies. Awkward silence. Like, oh, gee, I need to ask her something else. What should I ask her? What does he ask her, London? Uh, so when uh, when you get to school, what subjects do you think you'll study? <laughs> so these are this is his only game. That's the only question he knows, even if he hates it. Yeah, if that's all you've got, that's that's some weak game you're working. Yeah, with these Remington guys are gross. So there's gonna be two of them. One keeps trying to hit on Veronica through this "What's your major?" question. Another one is just gonna take Heather number one, Red Heather, to a back room and is 
pretty much just going to conjole her into an oral sex situation, which she's going to abide by because she has to stay popular. And it's one of the moments where we do get a little bit of a humanizing glimpse at Heather number one, Mm -hmm. where she as well is having to uphold this performance and that she is sexually objectified by older men who are preying on this young high school chick. And her insecurities. It isn't a great shot, though, because she's going to go down as the camera goes up. And the picture that is on their wall, I meant to look up what that print was, but is going to be the guy sitting in a chair just leaning back as this fan is blowing on him. So instead of, we talked about match cuts on Don't Look Now, but this isn't really a match cut. This is like a match pan. Yeah. It's going to be a shot of this guy in a chair getting blown, and we're going to pan up to a print of a guy in a chair getting blown by a fan, and it's hilarious. Yeah. Heather 1, though, totally has, like, the Helga approach from Swordfish to Blowjobs, because when she leans over, it's very clear she's leaning way the hell over and is... Gonna be going down this guy's outer thigh, if not his hip. Yeah, it's way over there. I guess just like those outer quad jobs we're learning. You know, maybe that's. I mean, these actresses all were like fifteen to eighteen. Yeah, maybe they didn't want to at all put them in a position where they had to go anywhere near that business. That's yeah, fair, fair. I'll allow it. It's cool. Meanwhile, Veronica, she wants no part of this bullshit. Yeah, this she is... is self-harming with matches on a couch yeah. somewhere. We're, is... The editing here is getting fierce, too, because we're at the party, but we're also bouncing to Veronica's house in her room where she's got that monocle on and that pen is flying, man. Yes, the monocle. So she keeps a journal, as we've mentioned, but what we didn't mention was that when she does, she's usually wearing her journaling monocle. <laughs> It's not glasses, it's one monocle lens. She just puts it right in there, in her eye. Yep. And it's an amazing choice. Mm -hmm. It's so quirky, it's so wonderful. And yeah, so it's going to cross-cut with her journaling voiceover narration about how much she just wants to start killing people. (laughs) For reasons that are more than a spoke in her menstrual cycle. We kind of were empathizing with her, because we are like, yeah, this is an unpleasant situation that you find yourself in. Meanwhile, Cross got back to the party as she's trying to light her hand on fire. She then lights a piece of paper on fire, tosses it out the window. It starts a dumpster fire. Like, this whole thing is just turning into a dumpster fire. Subtle, mm-hmm. not subtle. No. College boy number two is going to come in and is all like, I want to get laid. And she's like, yeah, I, I'm not feeling this right now. I am going to bounce, but I'm going to throw up first. Yeah. So... She's had a little bit to drink, and unfortunately, Heather number one witnesses this upchuck reflex because it kind of happens on her shoes, Mm. and that's pretty great. Heather number one is going to chase Veronica outside, super pissed that she can't hold her shit together and let college dudes, like, date rape her or whatever. This was a test for Veronica and whether or not she could hang with the Heathers, and she's failing. So come Monday, nobody at Westerberg High is going to let her play their reindeer games. <laughs> That's an interesting threat. <laughs> well, all right. Not, not the reindeer games. No, don't take those away. Damn it all. But you got me. Hit me where it hurts. And there's this amazing thing happening with the light here in this scene. Uh-huh. Because Red Heather is clearly coated in red throughout this entire film. I mean, her... Clothes are all red. She plays on those red croquet mallets with the red balls. Her bedroom that we see later, her house is all going to be red. Meanwhile, Veronica's color has been blue. 
So all of her clothes are going to be blue, and she plays with the blue croquet mallet. <laughs> she leaves the guy with the blue balls. Hey, <laughs> but you yeah. know. Uh... And in this scene, what we have here are two types of light. We've got this really heavy red filter light, <laughs> and we've got a really heavy blue one. And this alley has been set up as this contrasting war of these two colors. Into this alley is going to come our Red Heather and our Blue Veronica, and they're going to argue and they're going to fight it out. And we're getting shots and reverse shots of both of them during their arguments, and the red and the blue are falling on their faces. Once again, subtle, not subtle. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's super, super cool <laughs> with this color coding light. Although, in a way, when you point it out, you're like, holy shit, this is not subtle at all. But I also think in a weird way it is subtle because I don't know that everybody necessarily clocks that when they're watching the scene. But mm -hmm. if you go back and you look for it, suddenly everything is like, holy shit, this entire alleyway is just a clash of blue and red. Yeah. And I mean, really, on second watchings and repeat watchings, you begin to see where the blue light keeps popping up and why it does so yeah yeah blue light it's gonna be a thing i mean just different colored lights in general are used throughout this movie to very good effect yeah so and they're they're fighting because heather mm. she brought her to her first remington party and she got paid in puke yeah veronica's gonna be like lick it up baby lick it up and so they're Ooh, they're fighting okay. they're fighting it out lick it up yeah like heather's reminding veronica you were nothing before you started hanging out with me you weren't popular at all now you're popular the most important thing a high schooler can be. Girl Scout cookie. Yeah. <laughs> Cut to Veronica's chilling in her bedroom. Yeah, as you do. You're a teenage girl just chilling out in your room, your sanctuary, your place of comfort and safety. And then a guy comes in through the window. And that's JD. Just, yeah, he's going to pop on up there. I'm like, that's not a red flag or anything. You know, he's yeah. just <laughs> popping up into your window. You even told him where you lived. Like, what, what the fuck is going on here? Oh, God. I have a side theory oh, yeah? that is not actually a real theory. I don't think that this is what is fully happening in the movie. But the more I watch this, the more I kind of get the vibe in some scenes that JD might not even be a real person. And we might have some sort of fight club situation Ooh. where JD is all in the mind of Veronica. Spoilers because for fight he club. Always <laughs> but <laughs> just seems to be there right so he's gonna pop up and suggest that they go and they take care of heather chandler well first they're actually gonna go play some strip croquet on the lawn because that's what every adventurous teen does you know they express their sexuality through croquet matches did We've you all been there yeah i was gonna say did you not I once again I have never played croquet. I did not know the rules until that goddamn one hour dive into how to play croquet videos. But I, although to be fair, like none of them mentioned strip croquet, so oh oh if they you had, were watching that the might right. have gotten more interesting. I'll send you the better videos then. I'll send you I'll send you the good stuff. They're not on YouTube, but they're out there. In some ways, the strip croquet. I mean, we're gonna get cut to the aftermath of it. So, but it's once again subtle, not subtle because. There's two croquet mallets, and both of them have their respective underwear on the croquet handles nice. that are just sort of flying yep. out there like flags. So we're being told, like, no, these guys are totally naked. Yeah. Right? So I guess it ended in a tie then? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so that's impressive. They're, they're evenly matched, well, you know? Ended in a tie. Guess we should bang now. Yeah, and they do, or they have, apparently, because they're wrapped up in this blanket on the lawn. And so... It's kind of cool to establish Veronica as both casually sexually active 
and apparently a genius, we're going to learn. As she states, yeah. She's going to tell Christian Slater, like, hey, here's the deal. I kind of have this really high IQ, and I was going to skip a few grades and go to high school early, but my parents were worried that I wouldn't make friends. And so now I use my genius IQ to try to figure out what to wear in the morning. And it's a weird detail, because she doesn't need to be a genius for the satire of this to work, nor does she ever exhibit particular genius tendencies. So... It's the one thing in the movie that I'm like, what? <laughs> Why? But uh, it is yeah. kind of cool that, yeah, she just she just jumps right on top of uh, JD here and gets hers. I think the musical goes a little bit further with this and explains that this is her first. She's losing her virginity to JD, and it's brought about because she's freaked out by the fact that she is essentially left in the musical anyway. They make it very clear that that fight between her and Heather number one was the end of her time with the Heathers that she is now, you know, cut off from the group. So that stress and that anxiety leads her to lose her virginity to JD. As you do. It's a musical. Who gives a shit? Yeah. And in the film, though, we do not get the sense that this is a loss of virginity Mm -hmm. moment whatsoever. And I like that better. I like that Veronica might just be casually sexually active because we don't get that as much in teen movies. Right. And it's important for Dan Waters, for all of the the, sh- the tongue-in-cheek shit we're giving Dan Waters for being super pretentious and <laughs> trying to use little Kubrick bait or whatever. He is doing a really great job of becoming self-aware and playing with certain teen movie tropes. And one of the most eye-rolling, biggest deal thing in teen movies often is the concept of virginity mm-hmm. and the idea that, oh my God, when am I going to lose my virginity and how am I going to lose my virginity? So teen movies like to make a really big deal out of that first time or about teenagers having sex. And so this is going to flip that script a little bit. And we just have this character that we don't get to know her first time because not relevant. And she's already very sexually confident with herself. Mm-hmm. And there are teen women that are like that. It doesn't always have to be the marker of identity and I found that actually really refreshing I really liked that so I refuse to believe that this is her first time because yeah it doesn't matter yeah. right? and that's awesome <laughs> so yeah they're they're gonna have hooked up and then they're gonna have a little like after lovers talk about as you do what generally leads after the whole like well that was fun Let's go kill someone. Yeah, that's... That seems fun, too. I'm at my most murderous post-coitus, so, yeah. Yeah, strangely, I believe that about you. Uh, now, thank you? They Actually, although they don't really fully talk about killing someone, they kind of more talk about, like, let's go make Heather One pay. Sure. So they're going to go to Heather One's house. Mm-hmm. And Heather One's house is a very red kitchen because color-coding is great. It works yeah. really well. They're going to try to decide what can we give her to make her throw up because she made fun of Veronica for throwing up. So this is an Mm -hmm. eye for an eye, vomit for vomit kind of justice system. Yeah. Veronica says, so how about some milk and orange? What's the upchuck factor on milk and orange juice? Put those together. And JD just goes straight to the Drano. Just immediately. Yeah. And also orange juice and milk, like zero upchuck factor. Oh, <laughs> there's nothing. just tastes weird. I mean, that's kind of what like Orange Julius was entirely based around. Yeah. Also, I used to really love mixing orange juice and milk as a kid. It tasted like a creamsicle. Oh. I was a fan. I never did that. I should have tried that more. Yeah, it was delicious. Oh. Not for everybody, not taste for everybody, but certainly will not make you vomit on principle. But JD, he just goes straight for the blue stuff. 
and it's going to be kitchen hole or something of that nature on the label because once again yeah they could not get anybody to sign off to let them use their brand in the movie i mean yeah i get it (laughs) i could see that being a problem I would have been shocked if they could have gotten someone to sign off, and I totally would have respected a company that gave them product placement. There was one. I mean, it looks like Carnation in a weird way. The milk people didn't seem to have a problem. But the one company that did give them permission to use their stuff was Swatch. Because when she throws... (laughs) So later, (laughs) Heather number three is going to throw Veronica a swatch after Heather number one is dead and say, like, here, she'd want you to have this. She was always saying you couldn't accessorize for shit or whatever. And yeah, swatch was like, sure, go ahead, use us. So that was great. So respect swatch. Yeah. But... But... Glass full of Drano, not Drano. Some Drano and not Drano. They have two, like, coffee cups. One has the Drano in it because that way Heather One could not see what liquid is inside the cup. And then another coffee cup that has the milk and orange juice. They try to, you know, hack up some loogies and spit into it, but they, they can't. It's a phlegm globber. Phlegm globber. Phlegm, phlegm globber. we got to respect the slang in this movie. It's like, maybe we should cough up a phlegm globber or something. And they both just hack and snort and try and no dice. Yeah. It's actually a really well acted moment. <laughs> they have I, a lot of chemistry in the uh, scene. We can't it's do one of my that. favorites. Bummer. Yeah. Because, yeah, they, they can't. It's like, no, yes. no. All right. We'll just try the orange juice and milk, though. Yeah. But then after trying to hack up these phlegm globbers and not succeeding, this is an aphrodisiac because they begin making out. And so Veronica grabs the wrong glass. She grabs the Drano, not Drano glass. Mm-hmm. And JD is going to notice and call after her. She'll respond back. Yeah. Oh, no, nothing. I'll carry the cup. I just I'm, I'm picturing your Willy Wonka calling after a child. No, don't stop. Come back. <laughs> no, stop. Don't do it. No, no. And Yeah, so he's going to grab that cup, walk up the stairs. Heather is sleeping peacefully in her bed with one arm above her head, all in red. And uh, yeah, they they kill her, basically, because (laughs) she wakes up. They claim that they're there to apologize. She does not seem to be taken aback that somebody is just watching her sleep and standing in her room. That's chill. Happens all the time. They offer her this hangover cure imply that she might be chicken if she drinks it, and she's going to catch that and ask, do you really think I'm going to drink it just because you call me chicken? But then she does drink it just because they called her chicken. Yeah, we do think that, Heather. That's exactly what you're going to do. Yeah, and it turns out to be true. And knocks it back really fast, too. Apparently, knocks it back so fast, can't even smell or taste that it is something very toxic in there. Begins to gag and gulp. Her teeth are now blue from the not Drano and her last dying breath. What does she say? Corn nuts. Yeah, why? Face plant. Why corn nuts? That's a little odd, but. Well, she had wanted corn nuts the night before, so she might have a deep relationship with corn nuts. Maybe it's her favorite thing. Yeah. I don't know. But it's a great final last word because it's bizarre. And she's just going to face plant oh. into this glass coffee table. And yeah. it is so amazingly brutal in a very mundane way. It's like the combination of the camera angles and the way that this is cut is really great because there's a camera that's looking right down on the coffee table and a wide angle shot from below on the floor. So you get like wide angle shots always make movement towards and away from the camera look a lot faster and more intense. 
So you have the shot of her falling forward towards the floor, and right as she hits the coffee table, it cuts that above shot, so now you have her hitting, like, crashing through the table, and the glass shatters and goes everywhere. So those two bits put together just make, like, a... It's like that editing that slaps that I talked about in Don't Look Now. And again, I'm not saying slaps in a way that is meant to be cool. I'm just saying it has impact. Yeah. Yeah. And it also is augmented by the fact that there's no prior establishing shot of this coffee table. So this coffee table just yeah. comes out at no It's jarring because it's like, whoa, what? <laughs> who put that it's there? It's kind of amazing. It's just all of a sudden she grasps her throat. She chokes out the word oh. corn nuts and face plants and she falls hard and everything shatters to make it even more fun she is going to face plant right next to a stack of things one of these things is just a tongue-in-cheek magazine publication whose front cover reads the fall of the american teen oh, <laughs> apparently oh, their cover story oh. so we've got that going on and then also the cliff notes to the bell jar which we'll get to here in a second. And then in the background is a Patrick Nagel print on her wall. Oh, yeah. And I got so excited. That's right. It's that, uh, I forget the name of it, but yeah, it's it's uh, just one of his like more famous portraits that he did from back in the yeah, day. Yeah, it's actually, it's one I have on my wall that right now. You t- so yeah. <laughs> Patrick Nagel was an artist who has this very distinctly visual 1980s style, even though a lot of his work came out in the 1970s. So his stuff is this strangely futuristic vision of what the 1980s aesthetic is going to become. And his most well-known subject matter were these very austere, perfect women that were a little bit dominant, a little bit sexual, but an upheld almost alien eerie perfection and so that also becomes a very cool random production detail to put on heather's wall because that is a certain type of aesthetic ethos that she is aspiring to in the 1980s that makes a lot of sense yeah although veronica and jd they're not going to care much about this patrick nagel painting they are a little bit more distracted by the bell jar copy because Veronica, she's freaking out that she just killed her best friends. And your worst enemy. Same difference. Oh, okay, yeah. Cutting observation, right? Uh Cuts to the core. But this also feeds into a little bit of my Fight Club conspiracy theory. Oh, okay. Because she jumps really quickly into not we killed her, not oh my God, this was an accident. I I thought I was giving her orange juice and milk. Mm. She doesn't even stop to question what just happened. She jumps right directly into holy shit, I just killed my best friend. I'm going to have to send my SAT scores to San Quentin instead of Stanford. She is not including JD in this at all. (laughs) And I find that really interesting. In some ways, whether he actually is physically present there or not, it does seem like this is something that she has been harboring within her for a while, this death wish that she has on Heather one and is feeling automatically guilty because this is that wish manifest. But yeah, it's another just moment where it just seems weird that you're not going to include him in this at all. Like he was the one that poured the cup of Drano. He was the one who brought it up the stairs he's the one that handed it to her and yeah you're yeah you're just gonna take full-on responsibility curious but 
Then JD has an idea. JD and or in the Fight Club Conspiracy Theory, Veronica has an idea <laughs> Veronica through JD. slash JD. They see the copy of the bell jar, Cliff Notes. Yeah, and they're like, hey, what if it's a suicide thing? Idea. Idea. Why does he get this idea from seeing a Cliff Notes for the bell jar? Yeah, so the bell jar is in 1963, a semi-autobiographical novel by Sylvia Plath. Oh, Sylvia Plath. It's going to tell the protagonist's descent into mental illness, and it parallels what many think might have been Plath's own experience with clinical depression or bipolar 2 disorder, the two that they kind of throw around for Plath a lot and or for the character in this particular novel. Plath is going to die by suicide in actual history a month after its first publication, Mm. and so... She is, both her and this novel tend to become a synonymous shorthand often for women committing suicide and or women with depression. So there are a lot of movies I see that in shorthand, if you want to establish that your character is edgy, moody, and maybe a little depressed, you have a establishing shot somewhere where she's reading Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar on a Bench somewhere. Mm-hmm. That tends to be a thing I see a lot in movies. And uh, yeah, but Heather, she she doesn't even read the actual book. She has the cliff notes. And that becomes extra hilarious that somehow her, like dark humor hilarious, mm-hmm. that they're going to try to create a deep, meaningful suicide out of the fact that she's read like the Cliff Notes version of this deep, meaningful suicide book. And so Choices. Veronica, using her pre-established skills at forging other people's handwriting, begins to write a fake suicide note that Heather would have written. There's a little debate on whether or not Heather would have used the word myriad, but that, uh, that apparently does the job because the next day everyone is mourning the fact that Heather is dead, and it's very sad. The teachers are trying to figure out how to help the students mourn. Now we have that locker room scene with the aforementioned Swatch. This movie brought to you by Swatch. And we have this very interesting moment where, as if in a daze, Veronica wanders into the shower area, turns on the showers, and just stands underneath the shower and just lets the water go completely over her. One, we do to point out, Looks fucking gorgeous. Winona Ryder looks amazing in this moment. She's super gorgeous. It's crazy. Yeah. And then the very next scene, she's dry, which always struck me as a little strange. It's obviously a class the same day because she has the same outfit, but now her hair and her outfit are completely dry. So, yeah, a little strange. Well, but <laughs> I don't know so much about why she's suddenly dry, but... So there is a deleted scene here that okay. I did learn from the commentary was actually shot, but they decided just was not working in the final product. This also, once again, goes back to the Waters trying to make fun of and or touch upon every single teen movie trope he possibly could <laughs> in mm. his three hour script or whatever it was initially. One of the popular teen movie things are the shower scene or the voyeuristic shower scene in which either the camera lens or somebody diegetically within the film spies on women in the shower. Mm -hmm. This is going to happen in things like Porky's. Also, like, Carrie is going to have the shower scene where it opens and she's in the shower. Yeah. There was an entire scene here in which, in her grief and shock and whatever, Veronica gets in the shower because... 
And the others being confused and trying to follow her lead also get into the shower with all their clothes on. So there were multiple women that were going to be in the shower. Then somehow someone comes across that scene. One of the guys, I think Kurt or Ram, are looking through the shower and they see all of these women in the shower with their clothes on and are very huh. confused by this. Oh. And so it was this whole subsequent scene that was, once again, dark, humorously trying to play with teen TV tropes by taking this voyeuristic shower nude thing and turning it into a bunch of women grieving, which is not, not right. hot for most I, people. I get what they're going for there, but it does make a lot of sense that that was cut because it's, it's yeah. going a really long way to spoof a trope yeah. in a way. So, yeah, that's wisely cut. Absolutely. So they just kind of hung on to the women in the shower, but completely clothed aesthetic with yeah. Veronica's one shot here. Sure. Uh, yeah, still confuses me that she's just completely dry the next scene. And her classroom where the teacher is, the teacher is like, it's the touchy-feely teacher who's just trying to get everyone to you know express their feelings a little bit they pass around heather's suicide note which is seems really fucked up to me i do love this classroom is doing the circle desk uh formation it's supposed to be fucked up right Uh that's the point is that we have this teacher that it's like i have her note she holds it up and all of the students are like "Ooh, we're here for this misery porn or whatever and throughout this entire scene whenever we cut to veronica she's sitting by the wall and on like a bing bag chair but behind her are these butterfly wings that have been painted onto the wall and i couldn't really figure out if this is a metaphor for something maybe like, she has wings now, she can fly, she has blossomed into a butterfly from her cocoon state. I don't know what the, what are the butterfly wings all about? Because it's, it's very clearly deliberately done. It's not an accident that she's sitting mm-hmm. right in front of these butterfly wings. I just don't know why. Yeah, it might have been a cool shot, but yeah, also maybe she's spreading her wings and learning to fly now that Heather, number one, is dead. And the great thing is that all of these students are finding a way to make it about them, particularly this one dude who's going to tell a little story about how he used to date Heather number one, and she broke up with him because she thought he was boring, but now he understands that he wasn't actually boring. She was just deeply dissatisfied with her life. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that is yeah. the amazing uh, takeaway there. Yeah, buddy. And the yeah. teacher is like, yeah, okay, well, does anybody else have any ways of processing this grief? And this entire thing just becomes a dark parody very quickly of the ways in which people in the aftermath of these teen suicides were doing really interesting things with them in real life, generally venerating the individual that had died and all of a sudden acting like they cared so much about this person, that they were their best friend and that they're deeply grieving. There was also a big media storm at the time in the 1980s that was very concerned about teen suicide as an epidemic in real life, not in the Heathers movie. And so a lot of that was inspired by these things that they were just kind of witnessing happening in the national media. Winona Ryder herself is actually going to tell a story in an interview about how when she first got the script, what resonated with her is that there had been a girl who had recently committed suicide in her school who had been a bit of an outcast and was part of the, I think, a goth fashion aesthetic culture and was bullied a lot in school because of that. And that when she died, all of a sudden, the entire school reacted this way of like, oh, she was just the best and we're going to miss her so much. And 
Winona Ryder was all like, you guys are so full of bullshit. Like, that isn't the case at all. You guys were all terrible to her. High school is mm. the worst. And then she read this script around the same time. It's like, yeah, this is so accurate. I want to do this movie. And so it was that personal connection that actually brought her to this and really wanted her to commit to the script. And so we're seeing that all come to fruition right here, right now. And that's going to continue on throughout the film. Every time somebody dies, like, this is going to be the reaction as this outpour of just media frenzy and making it about them. Yep. Makes sense. We're also going to meet Mr. Dean, JD's dad at some point. Yeah. In this aftermath. We're going to get the single weirdest father son dynamic I've ever seen in a film. It is so weird. Holy shit. Yeah. JD and Veronica are sitting down watching the news and we hear an older man come in and JD says, well, hey there, son. I didn't hear you come in. And then an old man comes in, looks at JD. Hey there, Dad. How was work? Gets on his treadmill. Work sucked. So they keep referring to each other as the opposite thing. I don't get it. It's weird. I mean, I, maybe that's the weird. point that it's supposed to be weird. But what the hell are they going for here? It's wonderfully unsettling. It unsettles Veronica. She doesn't know what to do with it yeah. either. And so on the surface, that's one of the functions this serves is to just unsettle everybody. The other thing it does do a little bit is establish just how fucked up JD's home life is and how complete of a lack of parental authority he has in his life to the point that the script has actually been inverted in a slight way. There is also this very esoteric <laughs> reference happening with teen tropes in movies, starting with Rebel Without a Cause, as we mentioned earlier, that really began this trend of teens who were blaming the world and their position in it and their attitude in it on the relationship that they had with their parents. Mm. And here, JD is going to be the antithesis of that because he doesn't even really have a parental relationship with his parents or his dad. His dad is not authoritarian at all. He doesn't even accept the role of father because the script has been inversed. A little bit later in a different scene, Veronica is going to ask him, do you even like your dad? His response is, I haven't given the matter much thought. <laughs> and that is, as yeah. Waters actually mentions in the commentary, deliberately a tongue-in-cheek reference to the inverse of how all teens in movies seem to blame their parents, whereas... Christian Slater hasn't even thought about it. Yeah. Like, that's so far removed from his mind, his relationship with his father. Mm -hmm. Still a fucked up dynamic, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to, to be sure. And his father has got a strange man who goes on about how he's trying to demolish a building, but he's like, these old bitches want to save it because the Glenn Miller and his band once took a shit in the building. Like, well, I mean, you know, if that, if that was a good shit for Glenn Miller and that meant something, you preserve the building. For that. Yeah, history. So, yeah, his father, Big Dean Construction, likes to blow shit up. Yeah. So that's an important <laughs> plot point for later is yes, that uh, this family blows things up. Yep. We're going to get Heather's funeral. So we get this funeral scene that is very Tim Burton-esque. And to top it off, we have Glenn Shaddix playing the priest who was in Beetlejuice along with Benona Ryder. So I don't know if that was deliberate stunt casting on the part of the, the producers or the directors there. Who knows? But, you know, it works. Oh, man. Yeah, we're going to get this very deep-voiced sermon. Everybody's there to mourn Heather Chandler. Heather number three, yellow Heather, is going to fix her hair using the holy water, which is just a really great <laughs> character choice. 
<laughs> Super great. Uh, and then Heather three is going to ask Veronica to go on a double date with her with Kurt and Ram yeah. because Kurt and Ram want to take her out and she needs a double for that situation. JD is nowhere to be found right now, so Veronica is like fine as long as it's not one of those things where they take us to go tip cows. <laughs> Jump cut to tipping cows. So great. The thing that we said we don't want to happen, it happens, and yeah, they're tipping over cows. Tipping over cows in Griffith Park. Mm -hmm. Tipping cows or cow tipping is such a great long-standing rural urban legend that seems to just be super pervasive and fascinates me because I'm not saying that nobody anywhere ever has never managed to tip a cow, but Newton's second law of physics would indicate that it is nearly impossible <laughs> to yeah. actually physically tip it's cows. But a, this is like a pervasive yeah. thing. You'd have so. to get a hell of a running start, you and three of your heaviest friends, to hit this Five cow. Five or six other people, yeah. And assume that the cow is just not going to move or just it's going to wait there. I mean, you and I have actually been out in the country near cows and have tried to approach cows, and cows don't go for that. Unless you have food for them, cows just get the fuck away from you. We were not trying to approach the cow to cow tip, by the way. No, okay, I should. It was more just to pet them and like, hey, cow, what's up? You know, you, you just happen to be around cows once or twice. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't remember why. But <laughs> whoever does, I don't know why I go anywhere with you. No, uh, we're going to have like a really dark scene here because basically Ram or Kurt, I can't remember which one, one of the jocks. it is because they're interchangeable. Yeah. These are like the homophobic assholes that are back again, just trying to sexually force themselves on women. Veronica is going to remove herself from the situation, covered in mud, and go try to smoke a cigarette near a tree. And JD shows up because JD is just always around. Maybe a figment of her imagination? Yeah. I don't know. But he's going to show up. And there's more blue light when there should not be blue light because there's this hazy blue light behind him that keeps catching the smoke from his cigarette. Cool looking shot, but why is there blue light there? Doesn't really make any sense, but that's just how JD and Veronica's world works. And that really, maybe that leads into your imaginary friend theory or, you know, mm -hmm. Fight Club style theory. I mean, theory. it kind of does because the blue light is generally coded around Veronica. So mm -hmm. he's just an extension of Veronica one way or the other, whether he's real or not. Like, once again, I don't actually think he's supposed to be fake in this narrative, but there are just places where it's he a, just seems yeah. really, really fake. It's an interesting angle to, to view the, the story at. He's going to be all like, what are you doing here? And she's like, I had to go on this double date. And he's all, yeah, I'm feeling a little superior right now. And she's like, yeah, whatever. What are we going to do about this? And my favorite random bizarre abstract line of the movie happens where he just thinks about it for a second, nods and says, Our love is God. Let's go get a slushy. Why is that a conjunction? Like, that is the craziest conjunction ever. But yeah, he concludes that their love is God. And so what they should do about this is go get a slushy at the 7-Eleven, sure. not 7-Eleven. Mm -hmm. So he's going to reach out for her. She's going to take his hand and they're going to bounce. Next day, everyone has heard about Veronica hooking up with these two jocks. This adorable dude in a dolphin shirt, who seems really sweet, is going to take her aside and sort of whisper, like, hey, so there's this story going around that they had a little, like, sword fight in your mouth last night. Like, well, that escalated quickly, you know? Yeah. Oh, she was with these two other jocks, and they totally stuck their dicks in her mouth at the exact same time. Well, that's an interesting detail to just make up, but you know what? We all need a good story to go around school, so hey, you know, 
Go for it. Yeah. She's going to be like, that didn't happen, though. So she needs vengeance. Vengeance will be hers. And, yeah, gets JD in on the action with her. And he says, well, look, why don't we we'll scare them? We'll tranquilize them. This is where Veronica really comes off like an idiot. Because, one, she says, why am I even bothering to write these fake suicide notes if we're not actually going to kill them? We're not going to kill them, are we? And he says, no, no, you see, we're going to tranquilize them. These, holds up some bullets, these are Ikluga bullets my grandfather brought back from World War II in Germany. I studied German a lot back in high school and in college, and ich is like just I. And anytime you have a verb that you conjugate for like in the first person, it always ends in an us. So Ikluga literally means I am lying. Or I lie. So he says, yeah, we're going to have some of these I'm lying bullets. They're not going to kill them. Like, yeah, okay, yeah. I know you didn't study German, Veronica, but you should have asked what the hell Ikluga means. Just just saying. Just saying. No, well, she thinks that's the name of the bullet. What is more confusing is his story is that they are a special bullet from World War II that were just used to make people look like they were dead, but they were actually tranquilized. And uh, one might ask, what purpose would those serve in World War II? Why would they have needed those in World the, War II? The Nazis, known for wanting to lightly tranquilize people. You know, that's what they did. That was their thing. So her and her genius IQ does not question this. Also possibly leading into the Heather's Fight Club theory where she already knows what's happening and she doesn't care. She just needs this external source mm -hmm. to take over for her. They are going to frame these two as a quote-unquote repressed homosexual love pact or suicidal love pact. Mm -hmm. And in order to do this, they put together a bag of stuff that when found at the scene is going to make these guys clearly register as gay. And this bag, this bag is something that I've had a lot of people ask like if I'm offended by this bag. And I am not. I actually kind of love what's in this bag. And a lot of people <laughs> tend to love what's in this bag because in this bag, there is like a candy dish, like some chocolates and a Joan Crawford postcard, which, you know, fair, like mm. we'll take it. And the thing that is apparently the crowning gold piece, which it is bottled mineral water. Once again, because Perrier wouldn't let them use their brand. So they're like mineral water. Just mineral water in general. And... Veronica just says, like, oh, come on, lots of people drink mineral water. And JD says, this is Ohio. If you don't have a brewski in your hand, you might as well be wearing a dress. I will say that this state loves it some beer. You know, that's how Ohio do. However, I've known a lot of gay men who love microbrew beer, too. So I don't really get how, you know, not having a beer makes you gay. Well, so that's the thing is that it doesn't, right? And yeah. that's where the humor in this lies for me is that the... But of the joke is not actually the gay community and whether or not they like mineral water, right? The butt of the joke is the fragile masculinity of straight dudes that, God forbid, drink mineral water in uh, case yeah. there's something <laughs> derived from that about their sexuality. And so that's why this moment is actually, like, okay for me and not offensive for me because who's being made fun of here is straight dudes right. and, like, their inability to, in 1989 in Ohio, <laughs> to drink water with bubbles. So... <laughs> That's that's fine. And Veronica is going to call these two dudes up and say, hey, will you uh, meet me out behind the school at dawn? Because it's always been a fantasy of mine to have two guys at once. And so at yeah, basically the, just yeah. makes them get up at, at dawn, dawn for like 
dick or whatever yeah. getting yeah she gets up at dawn for dick I, I have no idea but they're gonna stage this little scene she's gets them to start stripping because she kind of hopes that uh, they'll rip her clothes off for her and they're like mm-hmm. yeah it's a great idea so they strip down jd pops out of the bushes shoots one of them and she tries to shoot the other misses jd's worried about this all you missed and she's like no nah, it's fine man he was scared that's all we wanted right mm-hmm. that's not all jd like, okay wanted. i'll get him and he goes and he goes to chase him down this dude luckily is slowed because he has a broken leg which i figured they had put in the film because otherwise how is this scrawny little trench coat wearing chain smoker supposed to run down the high school quarterback turns out no this actor had actually broken his leg oh so that's well that rap is real but uh works out for the film he Uh chases him back and manages to get him right where the other dude is lying JD's going to yell out now, and it's going to be Veronica that just point blank pulls that second trigger. So once again, like she uh-huh. she wants this. Yeah, is a little bit the interesting thing. She doesn't not shoot him. The score is really badass here. I, I have a clip of this. Now, pay attention. Like The score has its thing going on. Veronica pulls the trigger, and the score does a really cool change up. I love that. Yeah. The tempo just completely breaks down a- after the kid is shot. Yeah, it's the score in this is really well done. I really love all of the scoring of this film. And yeah, there's going to be two pot-smoking cops that hear <laughs> this shot go off, and they think they maybe heard a shot the second time, so they go to investigate it, find these guys that are dead. They're just going to pick up the gun and get their own fingerprints all over it, so automatically clearing up any questions we might have of forensic evidence (laughs) being left behind because they're just trashing the scene here. All of the questions that they could have were already answered there at the scene anyway because mineral water. He pulls the mineral water out of the bag. He's like, does this answer your question? And apparently does because once again, these fragile masculine straight dudes are like, oh my god, mineral water. And uh, yeah, so cut to their funeral. Mm-hmm. Kurt and Ram now have a funeral. And it's a little a little sad because their families are there, and the families are actually all sad and broken up about it. But once again, like these guys have been such homophobic assholes, so it's like, it's chill. It's fine. Yeah, they can, yeah. They can stay dead. <laughs> the diary monocle journaling is going to get a reprise. Mm-hmm. It's going to start with, Dear Diary, my teen angst bullshit has a body count. What a great diary entry. So she's aware that she's killing people. Yeah. And then we're going to learn some stuff about JD. Yes. His mother may have committed suicide because we get a little backstory that his mother walked into a building that his father was about to demolish and waved at him from the window moments before the building collapsed. And JD says, they said it was an accident, but she knew what she was doing. Okay, so his mother committed suicide by building demolition that his father was putting into action. Yeah, that's a fucked up backstory. Yeah, so this is starting to paint a picture of little JD where he might have gotten this suicide idea from. Might not have just been something that randomly came to him when he saw Cliff Notes of the Bell Jar. This might have been on his mind for a really long time. And that's actually supported earlier in the narrative where... 
JD, he's staging the suicide, and Veronica's going to ask him, wow, you're really good at this. Have you done this before? And she means it sarcastically uh-huh. as a rhetorical tongue-in-cheek question. He's not going to answer. He doesn't say no. Yeah, yeah, he's obviously <laughs> done this before. So yeah. this dude who's been moving around and finding his little safe homes at 7-Elevens, not 7-Elevens across the country, this is just yet another school in which he's showing up to just take out a bunch of people. This is this thing, you know? Yeah, as you do. Cut to after we have this bit, and this is also where yeah, Veronica asks JD, do you even like your dad? And I never really gave it that much thought to begin with, I suppose. And so on and so forth. You know how it goes. JD is now meeting with Heather number two. And Heather number two, since Heather number one has died, has really kind of like loosened up. She's eating again, perhaps just because she hasn't been under the same pressure that she was when she was best friends with the first Heather. So JD says, look, you need to lead this school. You need to be the top dog again. He brings up Moby Dick and says that Moby Dick, Moby Dick's gone. He ate, fuck it, I just have to clip. I'm just going to play that. Moby Dick is dunked. The white whale drank some bad plankton and splashed through a coffee table. And now it's your turn to take the helm. (laughs) Yeah, he's going to recruit her to lead the school using Moby Dick metaphors. But why Moby Dick metaphors? Okay, so Moby Dick is a novel from 1851 by Herman Melville. And if your high school was mean enough, you had to read it. Yeah. God damn that book. Heather Duke, Heather number two, Green Heather, Shannon Doherty, has been clutching a copy of Moby Dick throughout most of this movie. She's always reading it. She loves it. It's her... Life Manifesto. It's her version of her grotesque falsehood. And that is this tale of Ahab, the captain of this whaling ship, who really just wants revenge on Moby Dick, who's this great white whale that on a previous voyage had bitten off Ahab's leg at the knee. He just, he kneecapped him, basically. Hashtag metaphors. Because... (laughs) Heather, number one, has always been Heather, number two's great white whale, who had bitten her and kept her down and she'd become obsessed with taking down Heather number one. And now Heather number one is gone. The Moby Dick is dead and it's time for her to embrace a new quest. Side note, this novel in the script is actually Catcher in the Rye. Another thing that they could not get the rights for. So uh. J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, which is about a lot of teen angst bullshit and yeah. hating the phonies and whatever. Couldn't get the rights. Also way too fucking obvious. Yeah, most people are like, oh, man, it's too bad they couldn't get it. I'm like, no, Moby Dick works way better. It's just funny that it's Moby Dick that he uses to corral her to this section. That's Yeah, or even just that Heather number two is obsessed with Moby Dick because that's a cool novel for a teenage popular girl to be obsessed with because very few people actually want to read Moby Dick once, let alone multiple, multiple times. So it creates a certain interior space for Heather number two, which wouldn't otherwise be there. But why JD wants to recruit her to do him a favor is because Veronica has since broken up with JD because she's like, okay, we've killed one, we've killed two, now we've killed three people. Mm -hmm. Not only do you not really seem to have any sort of issue with this, you just shot a TV. That freaks me out a little bit. (laughs) So we're done. Mm -hmm. He's like, you'll be back. She's like, I don't think so. He's like, okay, fine. I'm going to find ways to provoke you into coming back to me. And that's by creating a new Heather that needs to be killed. So yeah, he's going to work on that. In the background, 
a rash of actual troubled teens ensue. Martha Dunstock is going to try to commit suicide by walking out into the street to get hit by a dump truck. Once again, hashtag symbolism. <laughs> subtle, not subtle. Has the suicide note taped to her chest. So poor little Martha, she ends up heavily casted in, in a mechanical wheelchair for a little while. At some point, Heather number three is also going to try to commit suicide because it's the cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. Heather number two, though, she's not committing suicide. She's alive, man, and out of control. <laughs> what, what is the, the Shannon slap commentary story? So at some point, Shannon Doherty, Heather two, is going to show up and Veronica is going to slap her. Shannon Doherty's always had a little bit of reputation <laughs> as being... Not the most delightful person to work Look, with. Don't fuck with Brenda, okay? Just don't. Brenda's a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems like this was kind of outpelled a little bit in the commentary because in the commentary, the writer's like, okay, and here comes the time for the Shannon Doherty slap, which we were all looking forward to. What? And then the director trying to be a little bit more diplomatic. He's like, I have always said she was very professional on set. And Dan Waters' like, immediate response was, yes, yeah, so was Mussolini. And what like, the fuck? Jesus. God. Shannon Doherty was 15 years old when she made this movie. How bad does a 15-year-old have to be for the writer of your film to compare you to Mussolini? Oh. Like, oh no. God. And the thing is, is that after he said that, both the producer and the director just kind of chuckled a little bit, but they didn't correct him. Jesus. They just moved on. Shannon Doherty. She's very professional. Also, fascist. Also the worst. Yeah, it was interesting. I was like, holy shit. Apparently, started early. God damn. Okay. But H2 is now out of control. And she wears red now because red was H1's color. She's been wanting to play with the red balls for a while now with all of the croquet. And she keeps getting shot down because she wants to be Heather number one. And now she is. And JD, he's just there to encourage her along the way. He has her sign a petition and get other kids to sign the petition that this group called Big Fun, who has a hit song, Teen Suicide, Don't Do It, that is the number one song right now, because subtle, not subtle, to play at the prom. And this apparently in the initial script was going to be a much bigger deal. This band, they had marked out this whole fake music video for Big Fun. They just did not have the budget or the time to shoot it. So it kind of became a background (laughs) joke that we sort of hear the song on occasion. But it's a very peppy, happy song about teen suicide. Don't do it. Teen suicide. Don't do it. Deter the kids somehow if they hear the song. But this this note that they're signing is actually a suicide pack. And we learn about that later when J.D. shows up to reveal his master plan to Veronica. J.D. is... He won't take no for an answer. He still wants Veronica back. He starts stalking her and leaving her threatening symbols that indicate he's probably going to kill her next if Mm -hmm. she doesn't come back to him. Yeah. She's like, fine, I'm going to call your bluff and fake my suicide, make it look like I've hanged myself in my room. And he's going to come up into that room and he's going to see her and fall for it and deliver this glorious dark humor speech about how... Why did she have to do this? Because I loved you. I was coming up to kill you, sure, but I was going to try to convince you otherwise first. It's amazing and really symbolizes exactly what this movie set out to do, which was to be darkly aware of teen tropes. And one of those teen tropes is the bad boy. That this bad boy from across the tracks is going to come and 
start up a relationship with a popular but dissatisfied with her life girl and help her change her life and find herself. That is not the case in this movie. That's what it starts to look like, right? Is that this bad boy from across the tracks with a heart of gold is just going to come in and start up this really scintillating romance. But no, we realize as this movie goes on, we've realized before this moment, but we really realize in this moment that this guy is just a straight up fucking psychopath. And that sometimes Occam's Razor would dictate that the Mm. bad boy does not secretly have a heart of gold and is going to help this girl find herself. He's going to be nuts and he's bad news and you maybe shouldn't go there and help serial murder your classmates with him. Yeah, pretty much. And does reveal like his whole plot to Veronica, who does a very convincing job of hanging herself. I have to give her not tying prowess uh, props there. She uh, really sells the illusion quite well. There's a whole dream sequence, which is also curious, where they kill Heather number two. But we're not going to get the idea that it's a dream sequence until afterwards. So it seems like Veronica falls asleep on her bed, knowing that JD's going to show up. And... He's going to convince her to go with him to Heather Duke's house. And hey, look, I already have her copy of Moby Dick with all the meaningful passages underlined, which is amazing. They underline the word Eskimo because he's like, usually, you know, I like a full (laughs) sentence, but that seems hauntingly appropriate. So among other things that he's highlighted in her book and she follows him to Heather Two's house. They pick out a dirty knife from the drawer. Veronica remarks, it needs to be spotless. He's like, she's going to kill herself. Why does she care? It's like, I think I know Heather Duke, and she would not kill herself with this dirty fucking knife. Like, she would want to see herself in it. And that apparently was the first thing that Dan Waters ever wrote on the screenplay, was just this image of the Heathers (laughs) would not kill themselves with a dirty murder weapon. It was that kind of humor that then set the tone for the rest of the film. They go in, and they kill Heather number two, and we get this cool, trippy, weird funeral where... It starts out with just this echoing word of, like, Eskimo. Everybody's in these 3D glasses. Things are getting weird. Heather number one shows up and shoves Veronica's face into some heavily oregano spaghetti. And you're like, the fuck? And then we learn that it was all a dream. And it's strange because nothing else in the movie is quite in that way. So that becomes very curious, but weirdly does also support the Heather's Fight Club theory in which a lot of this might actually Uh be in a not entirely reliable narrator perspective. Once again, I don't think this is where the film was actually going, but it it just reads weirdly unstable in terms of like what our narrator is and isn't telling us. But it is kind of just a fabulous sequence. Uh So we'll allow it. Yeah, this bit of Heather 1 revisiting Veronica is actually expanded upon in the musical where Heather number 1 is seemingly a ghost that keeps haunting Veronica throughout the entire thing after she's killed off and seems to really enjoy the attention that her death has brought to her. Yeah. In the context of where the original ending was initially going to go, the dream sequence makes a little bit more sense, but I suppose we will get to that. Won't we? Now, JD builds a bomb. He's working on his bomb. He's going to bring it to school. Mm -hmm. Heather, or I keep calling Veronica Heather. (laughs) That's not her name, but uh, Veronica comes into the school, sneaks on in there. We get this great exchange where, like, the hippie teacher is like, oh, Veronica, JD told me you killed yourself last night. I was like, not still here. We should really talk. Whether or not to kill yourself is the most important decision a young teen can make. 
I mean, you just got to be well informed before you make that decision. She's not wrong. Uh, yeah, she's not wrong, but it was, it's hilariously phrased. Like, <laughs> yeah. either is an option, but you got to be well informed, right? Veronica's like, I don't got time for this because JD is going to try to blow up this goddamn yes. school. JD has put some bombs in the gym where a pep rally is happening, and now he's headed down to the basement underneath the gym where the main bomb is going to go off. There's scuffle. There's a whole action thing where Veronica... And JD face off in the boiler room. It's shot a little bit more like an action movie sequence. Lots of blue light. More blue light. Yeah, yeah. just saying. Because Veronica's blue light, her presence is just overtaking this area. Mm-hmm. She's going to get a hold of the gun. The gun. She's going to shoot him. In the middle finger. Shoots his middle finger off after he flips her off. That's such a baller move. And he, yeah. JD, ex- exclaims, So maybe I am killing everybody because nobody loves me. Because, let's be real here, the only place that people of different social types can really get together is in heaven. Like, okay, that's interesting motivation. Yeah. So I'm like, so you're saying you believe in some sort of, like, Christian God? Yeah. Is that what's happening here? A little it's a, strange. It's a curious philosophical, yeah, turnaround. I was like, this is not what I would clock to you for, but fine. Yes. But yeah, he's just a poor, sad boy. You yeah. know, he just wants love. Poor guy. Veronica does defuse the bomb and says, like, you know what I really need? Cool guys like you out of my life and shoots him in the shoulder and, and takes him down. She heads outside. She sees the pep rally in process. She smiles a little bit to herself, goes out onto the steps. But meanwhile, motherfucker, he isn't dead. So he, JD, comes out of the doors behind her. They're standing in front of the school. They have this little exchange where he's all, wow, you have more strength in you than I thought you did, or whatever. She's like, whatever, I'm not going to stop you from killing yourself as you reveal that you have this bomb under your cloak, trench coat, whatever. So he's going to walk a little bit further away, and he's going to stand there with his bomb on his chest, and he's going to pitch a question to her. That sounds a hell of a lot like the alien question from earlier, because we set that up with this idea of, say I really did blow up the school, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And this was a question that was posited to all of them earlier. If you only had so many days to live, or had to narrow down your priorities, because that's essentially what the alien question was, in terms of the aliens land on the world that are going to blow it up in two days when you have all of this money. What are your priorities in life? What are you going to prioritize? And he's asking her that again now. Like, what are you going to do now that you've been given the second chance? She thinks about it and she realizes, like, she's not going to go for dudes like him. She's not going to hang out with girls like Heather. She re-evaluates those priorities. But what she's also going to do is she's going to take out a cigarette (laughs) and she's just going to put it unlit in her mouth Mm -hmm. and wait for this countdown of JD to just explode into flames. And I don't think I've ever seen anything more apathetically baller in a film (laughs) than somebody just waiting with a cigarette between their lips for the flaming viscera of their exploded ex-lover to light that cigarette for them. But it's kind of amazing. And so she does that. He explodes. The cigarette does indeed light, and she takes a drag of it before throwing that to the side. She's looking a hot mess because explosions and ashes and whatever gets back into the school. And how does our film end on this sweet, weird little note? She runs into Heather number two, just immediately snatches that red scrunchie away because it's the red scrunchie of power and says, there's a new sheriff in town. Fuck off. Just stop being an asshole. There's no more popular kids. 
Forget about it. Kisses her on the cheek, and you're like, well, I'm not going to fuck with you because you look like you will cut a bitch. Yeah, your face is ashen with the explosion. You clearly are ready to do something. So, yeah, I'm just going to leave you be with your red scrunchie of power, and we'll call it a day. Veronica sees Martha on her motorized scooter moving around and, and says, Hey, Martha, you got any plans for prom night? No. Neither do I. You want to rent some videos, uh, some new releases, pop some popcorn? Yeah, that sounds good. I think I like that. Yeah, I'd like that too. And then they walk off into the sunset like Bogey and Clyde, and Clyde at the end of Casablanca. Martha's doing little like circle wheelies on yeah. her wheelchair around her. It's all very pleasant. And we get this reprise of Kesaraba. It's a slightly different version. It's this. Slightly different version than the very classical uh, style that we had at the very beginning. That was actually a different version of the song uh, by a group called Sly and the Family Stone, a rock funk group from 1970s. And they were one of the very first rock groups to be racially and gender integrated with one another. I have to wonder if there's some to be some sort of symbolism there of starting on this very white bread mm-hmm. version of the song at the top of the movie. And then we come into this more broken down barriers theme with this new group. I don't know. So. Yeah. Seeing how much thought Stan Waters put into all of his little Kubrick bait moments. <laughs> like there's probably something there for yeah. sure. But that's the, yeah, that's how the movie ends. Or does it? Well, no, it does end like that. But let's imagine for a second. Yeah. So this movie had a couple of different endings initially, and it's going to be a little bit like Clue here where we're going to say, and that's how it could have happened. There's the original, original ending that was in the script, and New Line would not let them make it with the original ending. They're like, you got to do something else. This is too dark and weird. So they're going to rewrite a second attempt as a this is how it should have happened. What if at the very end, instead of agreeing to that video night, Martha jumps up and stabs Veronica right in the stomach, says, fuck off, Heather. And as she's bleeding out on the ground, the final lines of the movie and of Veronica's life are, that's not my name, you bitch, and dies. End of movie. That's another way it could happen. That was ending number two. But here's what really happened, a la Clue. (laughs) How it really was supposed to happen. So after after Veronica defuses the bomb, she then shoots JD, much like she does in the movie, but instead of just nicking him in the shoulder so that he's injured and can then get up and take the bomb outside to blow up, JD's just dead now. She has murdered JD in a very real and permanent way. And then decides, you know what, maybe JD had a point with that bomb. Maybe blowing the school the fuck up could have possibly been the way to go here. And so we have this sequence where Veronica's walking outside. The students hear an explosion cut to a little while later, and we're told that it's prom. And all the students are together. They're dancing. Big Fun is there doing their song. And what begins to become a little strange is that 
the students, they're dancing in their cliques, but then every now and then they'll switch up and start dancing with people outside of their social groups. And you think, well, that's a little weird. Well, it's because, like JD said, the only way that students from different social groups will get together is in heaven. And it turns out, yeah, we're in heaven now. So we do have an excerpt from the original script. Shit gets weird and shit gets crazy. Outside now, Veronica walks away from the school with her back still facing the viewer. A beetle is seen on the ground before her. Veronica picks up the beetle and moves back into an erect position. Veronica finally turns around. She stares at the beetle. The bomb is attached to her torso. Interior, classroom, day. A class is in progress. A loud explosion is heard. Students impulsively run to the window, but Betty Finn remains in her seat. She is compelled to look not towards the window at her right, but rather out the door at her left. She sees an open locker in the middle of a long block of closed ones. The hallway. With screams bursting around her, Betty, almost zombie-like, moves out of the classroom towards the open locker. Heather McNamara rounds a corner at the opposite end, her head still down in a severe contemplation. She looks up to see Betty move toward the open locker. They reach the locker at the same time and simultaneously read the note taped on the inside of the locker door. Veronica's voiceover reads it to the viewer. Veronica, voiceover. The slate is clean. It's up to you now. Your weapons can't be guns and poison. They have to be vague shit like compassion and kindness. I wish you luck. Pretend I really did blow up the school. All the schools. Now that you're dead, what are you going to do with your life? Betty Finn and Heather turn to stare at each other. Interior, dance hall, night. A super against black tells the viewer that this is the prom. A huge banner declaring, What a waste! Oh, the humanity! hangs over the dance floor of gussied-up dancing students. Big Fun takes the stage with their band and kick into a song. As the song progresses, bizarre entrances and events unfold in hyperkinetic fashion. Students of like cliques dance together. Suddenly, partners are switched so that students of mixed cliques joyously dance together. Jock Tony Taylor dances with all-out loser Phyllis McCarthy. Heavy metal gearhead Jackie tenderly sways with nerd Sheldon. Big Fun wails away. An alive ram suavely and sophisticatedly approaches Heather McNamara, carrying a bouquet of roses. He kisses her gently on the cheek. Finally, an alive Kurt comes onto the gazebo with the cow he tipped earlier. Mr. Dawson throws the frisbee across the dance floor to his son Bobby, who delightedly catches it. He throws it to a dramatically entering Heather Chandler, who catches the frisbee and gives it to a boy in a wheelchair. An alive JD, brandishing a guitar, does a smoking hot solo, and then flips off the guitar and runs into the dance floor throng. He grabs Heather Duke and dances with her, then quickly moves to Kurt to bop with him. Finally, he moves to Heather Chandler. They do a very confrontational dance before swinging happily into each other's arms. Heather Chandler, Heather McManara, and Heather Duke do Ring Around the Rosie. Various students join in, including Heavy Metal Gearhead Clyde, Pauline Fleming, the school newspapers Dennis and Ram. As Big Fun and their band build up to a climax, lookalikes of the leaders of the United States and the Soviet Union come onto the stage. Their respective flags fling down from the rafters. All people in the dance hall set up in a symmetrical pattern on the dance floor. They all break into a complicated and synchronized dance step. The viewpoint of the viewer is moved upward to a balcony above the dance floor. On the balcony is a beautiful dressed and coiffed Martha Dunstock dump truck. She is wailing beautifully and evocatively. The viewer's viewpoint is taken even further upward to a platform where Veronica Sawyer stands in a striking pose. She is smiling. End. 
find that the weird Dadaist way that that script is actually written <laughs> plays out at the end there is like, wait, what? Because you'll get these sentences. And then Kurt walks in with the cow he tipped over earlier. And Martha's over there, like, singing some sort of lounge singer song. And it's a whole thing. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's like this weird abstract thing that at first I did not think that the idea of this heaven prom would actually work. But then when I was reading through the script, I'm like, okay, this is actually just weird enough that it might have, because I was not expecting the general summation of this ending to work in the way that it seems to actually on paper, because it's just bizarre. So yeah, that was apparently the original end. And it was considered a dark end, even though everybody was around and there at the end, even when dead, because in and of itself, it has this dark humor that it's poking at just the idea of this concept of a heavenly paradise in which everyone gets along, because it's just showing how ridiculous that premise and that idea is. So it's not actually going to some sort of happy afterlife place. It's making just as much fun of that idea as it has everything else in this movie. And that's why it kind of weirdly works on paper, but I still like the ending that we got better. Mm -hmm. I do like the little up note. Although I also would have been fine with the oddity of Martha just stabbing <laughs> uh, Veronica and calling her Heather. Because from Martha's perspective, it's probably true that Veronica's likely no better than the other yeah. three that have been torturing her all year. There's really no reason for Martha to all of a sudden say, you know what? You're you're right. Your name is Veronica, not Heather. And that must make you different than the bullies that have been bullying me into being one of the few people who actually does try to legitimately commit suicide in this film. Mm -hmm. So it would have been a little bit more satisfying, I guess, for the, the Marthas of the world, <laughs> the true heroes. One of the things that I did see that was interesting in terms of whose story is this mm -hmm. is that there were a couple of different reviews and even both Mike Lyman and Dan Waters talked about this on the commentary because they noticed this as well, who the people thought was the main character driving force of the story and that most people do take this as Veronica's story, which I do as well, right? That she seems to be our main protagonist. This is her journey. But that a lot of the people in the industry that seem to be making more exploitation films would come up to them and say, like, Jason Dean was such an interesting, complex character. Like, that was such a good movie oh. for, like, Christian Slater. And Mike Lyman specifically referenced exploitation filmmakers that watch this and take it as Christian Slater's story and his <laughs> quest to take people out and down and then hmm. dies semi heroically and or terroristically depending on your viewpoint in the parking lot of the school in a tragic end so mm -hmm. which I had never really thought of this as Jason Dean's story so whatever I'm, I'm not even sure he exists I'm not even sure he's real <laughs> he's just a natural figment extension of the end of days ah yeah but what we really need to point out here is what a complete hack Dan Waters is because he ripped off this entire movie that's right I said it I'm throwing this down because this is just the same thing as Massacre at Central High, the 1976 <laughs> indie unseen movie. That's right. Okay, it's actually not really a ripoff at all, but there are some bizarre similarities, and Dan Waters has mentioned he has seen 
uh, Massacre at Central High, and the, the, the movie was probably bouncing around in his head a little bit when he was writing. But it's a 1976 film, and it's basically gender-swapped Heathers. The bullies are guys, which is more of a traditional thing for 1970s films, and the main character of the thing, David, is a new guy at the school, and he is really annoyed that these bullies are just complete assholes to everyone around them. They just run the student body. But... David has a friend, Andrew, who really you could say David is the JD character, and his friend Andrew is the Veronica character. And after a little while, David gets really annoyed with them, gets pissed off, and starts killing off the bullies one by one. And after he kills off the bullies, and they're no longer a thing, a power vacuum kind of consumes the school, and David, now just really upset and nihilistic about the fact that removing bullies just creates more bullies, decides, yeah, I'm going to blow the school the fuck up, and starts making pipe bombs that he is going to set off at a big uh, school dance, and then is talked out of it at the last minute by his friend, and then he takes the pipe bombs, runs outside, and is blown up by his own explosion. So, it's, yeah, there's some interesting similarities. Did you did you have a chance to watch it at all? I unfortunately did not. I still intend to because it's called Massacre at Central High, and I can't not watch a film called <laughs> Massacre at Central High. But, yeah, but it yeah, would be, I, not watched I it was joking, of course, at the top. It would be incredibly stupid to say that Heathers is a ripoff of Massacre at Central High because... There's no forging of suicide letters or anything like that. And Heathers has so much awesome art direction and style going forward. The performances are all great. Massacre at Central High is shot in the most boring way possible. All of the actors get the most wooden performances you can imagine. It's fascinating just because of how crazy it is and how nihilistically it treats everything that's happening in the movie. And again, it's called Massacre at Central High. You have to want to watch that a little bit. But it I was do. yeah, it was really fun to watch that uh, leading up for research on this movie because you do see like the connections there. You can see how Daniel Waters probably saw that one time when he was a little kid and was thinking about it a little bit while he was writing, but really did create his own thing with Heather. So yeah, not a ripoff, but definitely worthy of note. Yeah, so basically Central Massacre at Central High is no Winesburg, Ohio. <laughs> it's really ah. it missed that particular reference and mm-hmm. thus misses the whole point. Yes. This is a movie that was in some ways uh, ahead of its time. We mentioned that there had been some school shooting, some school violence Mm -hmm. in or by 1988-89, but nothing that really would have the cultural impact that would later start to happen in the late 90s, starting, of course, with Columbine in 1999, Mm -hmm. and then this pervasive fear of teen violence within the schools that kind of came at the millennium. And so this movie did have a little bit more leeway at the time to have a little bit darker humor at things Mm -hmm. of that nature. But yeah, even if that had been going on at the time, I think this film probably would have still made all of its same choices (laughs) because that's what makes Heather's so enigmatically great is the fact that it is just plowing down, going head on into this very dark, humorous take on what would generally be serious subjects. But because of that, it really emphasizes some of those social problems and anxieties and what is just a grotesque carnival 
high school actually is. And that is just endlessly fascinating and endearing to a lot of people. It's surreal. Uh, I think it's it goes far enough away from reality to kind of you're not as freaked out by school shootings in that movie as I think you might be. I find it interesting, though, that like you focused on the problem of the school shooting more than anything else, whereas like that's very low on my list of like the things that read as awkward I guess in that's, this film. But that sticks with me. I was I was in high school when Columbine happened, and I just remember how tense high school felt after that. It was a really crazy mm-hmm. thing. So, yeah, Columbine was just a very big part of uh, my mm-hmm. high school experience. And I think that just stuck with me a lot, even while watching this film. Yeah. And well, now that I'm thinking about it, too, it actually makes a certain amount of sense that perhaps you as a male viewer of this film might not have as many of like the other threats resonate with right. you strongly because that was more of the concern for you is like mm-hmm. oh this feels like a potential real threat is somebody who might want to come into the school and just harm random individuals within the school yeah whereas like the other themes that they're dealing with that do seem much more prevalent to me in terms of the female on female violence and bullying mm-hmm. and the machiavellian kind of games and date rape and the predatory nature of the men who come in and demand certain things from women or their participation yeah. or like the ex-boyfriend that won't leave you alone after the breakup that threatens your autonomy and possibly your life. Those, right? those are yeah. those seem more like naturalized things that are just daily things to worry about. <laughs> so it's kind of like, uh, statistically, I'm much more likely to have to deal with those first yeah. before, you know, school shooting. So those are issues that I actively try to sympathize with, but at the same time, like they were definitely not part of my high school experience. So watching a, a movie about high school and I guess I just kind of gravitate towards the things I can remember mm-hmm. dealing with a lot. And in my case, that was, yeah, school shooting kind of paranoia and fear. But you're de- you're definitely right that there are a lot of greater things happening in this movie than just that. Because, yeah, and all of those things were much more likely for me to encounter before. I was like, yeah. school shootings are so far like down on my list because like, the probability of that is so low compared to me being like bullied by homophobic assholes and being mm. stalked by weird dudes. That, yeah, like school shootings, like not, not a priority right now for me to worry about. So, yeah, different people bring their own life experiences to the movie watching experience, you know? It's like film is subjective and an art. How it goes. Speaking of people, top five. Oh, yeah, that thing. My honorable mention goes out to, to Kim Walker, who played Heather Number 1. Since she does die early on in the movie, she's not in the movie all that much. But, you know, she was just playing that mystic bitch so beautifully, which mystic bitch, I think, is a term that's brought up in the musical, not the movie itself. And Whatever. My number five is Christian Slater as that strangely tortured lunar weirdo. Like, yeah, well done, Christian Slater. And uh, good job. You know, channeling Jack Nicholson for this role and I seemingly every other role you've ever done in your career. Good job. Yeah. So I don't have an honorable mention because I cheated a little bit and I stacked a couple of my uh, numbers. So I'm like, oh, I'll skip over the honorable mention. Fair but enough. Number five is Carrie Lynn, who played Martha Dunstock. Oh, right on. She doesn't have many lines in mm-hmm. this, but she is such a memorable presence within this movie. Like she embodied that role, and it's a tricky role to play because the casting call is you need to have a physical look and body type that would just be universally bullied by everybody, uh, and you want to come and yeah. portray that on screen. Right? And that, yeah, but Carolyn showed up for that casting call, and 
embraced that role and she brings like a very interesting sensitivity to it like i just want to be martha's friend when i see her in this film so she's got some heart yeah kid's got some heart who's your number four my number four is michael layman the director this uh, was a hell of a debut film i gotta say like most debut films they're just kind of mediocre or middling or bad but my god this guy came out of the gate strong with this movie he didn't go on to do too terribly much after th- i mean he has he's worked a lot in television but nothing really yeah. as distinct as this i think the biggest other credit that he did as far as movies go was hudson hawk which is a weird film to say the least uh, but has directed a lot of television episodes of True Blood of American Horror Story uh, of shows I enjoy so yeah it's nice to, nice to see where his beginnings were and I kind of want to check out The Beaver I want to find out about The Beaver Gets a Boner I might have to find that somewhere sometime yeah I think if you look it up you can find it in the archives somewhere my number four is also Michael Lyman oh alright yeah, he was kind of baller to just direct this as his first project and to be the guy that would put his name on the film that no one in Hollywood wanted to yeah. make because it was too dark and controversial. He's like, yeah, fuck that. Risky move. Also, you gotta respect a risky move. Because he gave Daniel Waters a ton of notes. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. He was pretty instrumental in trimming down what was initially a three-hour film into a much more manageable film that we have now i don't yeah. remember how long it is exactly well, but it's not quite two hours no it's so, like, like a little over 90 hours. minutes definitely not <laughs> what, is, what is the actual running time on this thing it's an hour 43 minutes so yeah, yeah very... this did not need to be a three-hour tour by any means yeah <laughs> like where else were you gonna take us dan so Waters? many places yeah so many places my number three is winona Ryder. uh this obviously was not her first film but it was early, early in her career she had done beetlejuice prior to this i think this was her fifth film overall we've mentioned many times this was a risky film to make not a lot of people wanted to do this movie and to take a movie like this risky move on the on Winota's part so well done you know she just yeah, uh, I can't believe she was only 15 when she did this God, that's crazy yeah. so she, yeah I know she had her 16th birthday on set they remembered getting her a cake and stuff like that so and this did not come up earlier but there were a lot of actors that auditioned to be the Heathers or were offered the Heathers mm-hmm. and could not take it or didn't take it. So apparently Veronica was initially written for Jennifer Connelly, who oh. refused the role. Uh, I could see then, that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Heather Graham. Really? Auditioned for and got one of the Heathers. I think Heather McNamara, the yellow Heather. Okay. And her parents would not let her do it after they read the script. And Dan Waters remembered having this like two hour conversation with Heather Graham's mother, who Heather Graham was 17 at the time, 16, 17, Mm -hmm. and just could not get her to budge. So they hired out. But meanwhile, yeah, Winona Ryder, this 15 year old girl that reads the script, her agents are telling her, do not do this film. She's like, I'm going to do it, though. Yeah, she still loves it. She's still obsessed with this movie. So, that's pretty great. Yeah, Winona, thank you for not listening to your agent. Good job. My number three is going to be one of my little stack ties here because I could not separate them, even though they're vastly different. 
Rudy Dillon, who did the costuming, Francis Kenny, who is the cinematographer, and David Newman, who did the music. So the music, the cinematography, and the costuming mm. are all very different departments. True. But they all just pulled exactly their own weight. Yeah, they meld together very well. Like I said, the style of this movie is the best thing, and all three of those things come together to create this wonderful, otherworldly feeling uh, that goes on in this movie. Yeah, color coding all of the Heathers and Veronica was such a great, weird decision, which it wasn't just the costumer that was actually marked in the script as being an important thing to color code. But then the cinematographer jumping on board with that and color coding did their stuff. Who's your number... Dan Waters, I'll give it up. I feel like I've made fun of him a lot throughout this entire thing. But all the same, I am very happy that he has brought this story to us. And you know what? I have to just applaud the ambition of trying to get Stanley Kubrick to do your movie. And we got Heathers out of it. So thanks, Stan Waters. You're number two. My number two, Christian Slater and Winona Ryder. It's going to be a tie. All right. This is totally Veronica's movie, and Winona Ryder does great in it. Christian Slater is going to bring it just as hard. I absolutely love his performance Mm -hmm. in this. He is lethal, giddy, and psychotic. And I do love his voice and his strange, squinty little face. (laughs) So one of the people I was watching, I think it was Lena. Yay, Lena! Hi, Lena. Like She saw Christian Slater's face. Come on, then. She's like, there's just something about Christian's face where it just looks like it's being stretched from, like, every angle. <laughs> it, <laughs> like somebody... <laughs> it does, yes. Yes, and I'm like, that's such an accurate, yeah, assessment of the situation. But, no, they're both just really great. And they're both so young, so it's very cool. They've just got a lot of great chemistry together, so. It all worked out. It's working. Who's your number My one? My number one, got to give it up for my directors of photography because I'm a camera nerd, Francis Kinney. Yeah, the visuals in this movie are just delightful and wonderful to watch. All the high contrast colors that he was using for his lighting, the the visual lighting motifs that he used for the characters, all just beautiful, wonderful choices. Those crazy wide-angle lenses that he uses on close-ups of people. Yeah, just uh, just love my, my directors of photography. What can I say? Respect. My number one is another tie with Daniel Waters, the writer, and Norman Holland, who's the editor on oh, this. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love the Heather screenplay. I do. I think it's hilarious. I think it's dark. I think it's weird. And that is largely Daniel Waters. There's a certain tone. So he has the right to be pretentious in some ways on how good the mm-hmm. script is. But there are other ways, too, in which... He would, when left to his own devices, have gone way too far. <laughs> it, he needed to be honed in, and part of that's going to be Michael Lyman. Another part is going to be the editor, Norman Holland, on this. There's just so many amazing, weird jump cuts and match cuts that are going to happen throughout this. Mm-hmm. And that's not actually in the script, because right, yeah. listening to Waters talk about some of the places where the editing just works so well, those weren't the choices he would have made because when in the bulimia scene, for example, he really wanted to just linger there and see Shannon Doherty just throw up. And it works so much better when we have just this comment of, yeah, Heather, let's take another look at yesterday's lunch. And then cut to just the slop of today's lunch or yesterday's (laughs) lunch or whatever getting scraped out into the garbage can. And there are going to be so many moments like that. JD just going to shoot those two dudes and then just cut into croquet. And you're like, what just happened? 
it's it's beautifully done and it's done so many times that that seems to be the main editing style that this film is going for is just that really quick face slapping jump cut but all of them are hilariously timed so a lot of just the what makes this movie funny is the editing and it's really cool when you can find comedic editors so yeah mm-hmm. this film's so funny so great <laughs> so great <laughs> Uh, I mean, the only thing I'm disappointed by is that I couldn't figure out a way to make a joke about Winona Ryder stealing things. But, you know, that's how it goes. You stole our hearts in this film. <laughs> ah, very true. <laughs> there we go. Because, yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to safe word out because this movie, it's dark, it's gritty, but it's also bright and wonderful. And so, yeah, I guess I'm just perverse enough to say, go watch this movie because it does fill me with a certain kind of... High school, school spirits. been corrupted by capitalism. Space!